0: Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's your dad, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT A20. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath.
1: Well, folks, here we are. This is the last time we're going to be together before the polls close Tuesday. I am... I am really grateful to you for spending more than a year's worth of Saturdays with me. Together, we built a community that pulls the pieces together to see the big picture, what's important in our politics and our society. You've been part of conversations with experts about the dangers to our democracy, and the threats we face from a radical authoritarian movement, you've been part of efforts to counter lies with facts and to examine the actual work of our government. And upon examination, you've helped spread the word that Democrats are getting things done in both the federal and the state governments. Thank you. and Thank you for coming with me on this journey. Thank you for helping build this community where we care about our fellow citizens and our nation's future. I have one more ask, and I know you're up to it. Even, look, um, i got to do this by metaphor, I think. Even when the map is clear and the direction certain, travelers can make terrible mistakes in the fog. It, it might be hard to see an exit sign on the road or, or a channel marker that indicates the way to the harbor. Disasters happen in thick fog. Navigating dem- democracy is just no different Elections are those times when we decide what direction to go, and we look at the policy choices on offer, and we examine the values of the candidates um, like a driver looks at a map, and then we choose our path forward. For most of our history, we have fared well, but this year, the fog is thick, and it's hard to see. Um, You know, we've tried in the show to provide a way through the fog, and in this final week, I'm asking each of you to spend time helping others see the path that we're on and help make them safe, help them make safe choices as we vote. Democrats and Republicans differ on policies and on values. And with a little help from, you know, some fog penetrating radar, we can see these differences clearly. On abortion. Democrats will leave decisions to women and their doctors. Republicans will use the power of government to outlaw the practice. On business, Republicans believe tax cuts to the wealthiest along with radical deregulation of industry will bring prosperity to all. Democrats say the wealthiest should pay their fair share and they believe businesses should operate in a regulatory environment that promotes competition and protects consumers and the environment. On inflation, Democrats want to ease supply chain bottlenecks, reduce domestic demand, and protect ordinary citizens from corporate price gouging. Republicans, you know, they want to make permanent previous temporary tax cuts permanent and take cuts to Medicare and Social Security. I I don't know what that has to do with inflation. On crime, Republicans say they are all pro-police and pro-gun. Well, they're not, they weren't pro police at the Capitol. Democrats actually have expanded funding for police departments. They're adding training, um, and they're adding funding to improve training and to improve policing, and they're fighting for gun safety laws. On climate change, Democrats are for a transition to clean fuels um, uh, while also maintaining the fossil fuels through this transition. Republicans are actively, um, uh, I don't know what they're doing. They, they want to continue to subsidize fossil fuel companies, I guess. Um, democracy, you know, in a break with our history, Republicans are actively campaigning to reduce voting rights, to allow elections to, over- to be overturned by state legislatures, and spreading lies aimed at undermining confidence in our democracy. Democrats are firmly in our historical mainstream here trying to protect the integrity of elections and fighting the dangerous lie that elections don't work. And further, Republicans support the use of unlimited dark money to pervert elections. Um, Democrats support uh, and are eager to pass campaign finance and disclosure laws on immigration. Both parties were near a deal before dark money started to flow. Democrats still support that deal, which will strengthen border security while providing a a citizenship path for the immigrants who've long resided in the U.S. Uh, uh, On foreign policy, there's more unity between the parties, though Democrats take a stronger stand against global authoritarian rule and for organizations like NATO. So the differences on policy could not be clearer. Um And it turns out, of course, that large majorities of Americans support the Democratic positions on each of these issues. That explains why Republican positions are actually such thin gruel. They've done as much as they possibly can this cycle to avoid telling Americans what they will really do, opting instead for angry culture wars. I mean, trans issues really are not what government spends all its time on, but they're what uh, the Republican campaigns are closing on. It's just sort of shocking. In terms of values, so that's policy, right? In terms of values, I think there are decent candidates in both parties, but this cycle, the GOP has fielded a handful, of, and they're running for important positions, whose values are not sheer America. These are the election deniers, the conspiracy theorists, the ones who normalize political violence. I I won't further name them. Uh, Besides policy choices and values, there's one other thing that matters, and voters seldom notice this, but we've talked about it here over the course of a year, and that's the competence to govern. Democrats get things done. I mean, just consider infrastructure. The GOP likes the idea, right? But they couldn't pass a bill even when they had far larger majorities than the Democrats uh, had when they passed the infrastructure bill. Republicans simply don't know how government works and they don't care. So they can't use it to get good things done. So what is what is the GOP to do when policy choices and values Um, but we expect our leaders to demonstrate all favor Democrats in the cycle. How can they stop us from seeing the choice for what it is? Fog. The great Fox fog machine is working overtime in concert with the GOP and all manner of social media actors, you know, maybe Elon Musk hard to tell yet, um, to try and make it harder to see the road signs and the harbor lights. So in this last week of campaigning, let's all do what we can to remind everyone what's the reality beneath all this fog and to vote. Um, and I am very happy that today's show, we're going to focus a lot on how we see through the fog and what's really going on. So when, when, when we get to the end of the show and I tell you how you can go about helping people make their final decisions and get to the polls, you'll be well armed. My first guest today is someone uh, we met here last June, Dr. Jennifer Murcieka is a historian of American political rhetoric. She's a professor in the Department of Communications at Texas A&M. And I, I think when we spoke last June, she described the rhetorical devices that are used by Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson to demonize others, to build a sense of group identity among their followers, to discredit the media. We're going to do a little bit of that again today and go on from there. Uh, Dr. Murciaka, thank you for joining me.
2: It's my pleasure.
1: Well, you've started a Substack account, and I love the name. I love the name. Defense Against the Dark Arts of Communication. I hope people will (laughs) sign up. (laughs)
2: Yeah, it's, um, I taught a grad seminar, uh, and that's what I used for the title of the grad seminar uh, just last year. And uh, it's fascinating, right? So there's all of these strategies that uh, propagandists and autocrats have learned to use to take advantage of our vulnerabilities, our cognitive weaknesses, our emotional weaknesses, our social identities, Um, you know, the ways in which average people, all of us are vulnerable Um, and propagandists know what those are and they know how to exploit them. And so, uh, yeah, so obviously it's something I'm very interested in writing about.
1: And and the human species has not evolved immensely in the last couple thousand years. We're pretty much the same people we were a couple thousand years ago. And these, these rhetorical tricks aren't new, are they?
2: no they 're not new, um certainly not uh, <laughs> but um what is new is the way that we have learned more about cognitive science, um, which makes us it makes it easier to exploit our vulnerabilities um, The vulnerabilities themselves are not new. Um, right. but and, and neither is the fact that people who you know want to manipulate and coerce others will learn you know how to use psychology against us but um, but I think what is new is just how advanced it's gotten
1: well let's let's start um, with the unadvanced version and advance through the course of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Let's go back you know and talk rhetoric. I'll give you one of those old names and can you sort of describe what it is and how it's used? Currently can I give examples like ad populum?
2: Sure. So an ad populum appeal is appealing to the wisdom of the crowd. And it's typically used um, by someone who's trying to be a demagogue or manipulate others to praise their followers as the wisest, the best. You might see, you know, sort of essentializing claims that say that you know this group of people is the only real Americans um you know they're they're the only ones that matter. You might see it linked to voting, so it'll be something like, well, if we didn't vote for them, then they didn't win because <laughs> we are the right. only ones that matter right I um, definitely
1: heard that you definitely um, let, have heard that. Let's go through a whole list of these for people because it's just so mm-hmm. important. I think you, what, the way you describe it, it lets people sort of get their their radar ready for the incoming, right? Mm-hmm. So the other one, m- more uh martial ad baculum.
2: Yeah, so ad baculum is threats of violence or intimidation. Um, it is putting pressure on people to coerce them so that they don't um, try to debate you or, you know, or anything like that. And so um, an ad baculum threat could be something like, oh, I don't know, gangster talk, right? Like that's a it's a nice social network you got there. <laughs> It'd be a shame if something happened to it. Um, right. You
1: know, or, like, um, last time somebody w- behaved like that, we took them out on a stretcher, right?
2: That's right. Or you might hear. Yeah, exactly. Or you might hear things like, um, you know, uh, coupled with a a ad hominem attack, right? So attacking um, a person's character, attacking the media. So something like, you know, they're just fake news. They're so dishonest. I don't know why, you know, they're allowed to publish things like that. Used to be, you know, they would get sued for libel. And mm-hmm. if I'm ever elected, you know, I'll make sure that, you know, these these journalists go to jail. Something that Trump has said recently. Awesome. Um, and so you have are
3: a few rest. more
1: of these on your list. Reification.
2: Yeah. Reification is treating people as objects. Um, And it's incredibly dangerous, uh, especially when it's coupled with ad baculum, with threats of force, um, because it's a recipe for genocide. Right. You say that these people are not real people. They don't count. um, And in fact, they're dangerous and they're going to attack us or hurt us or ruin our lives or ruin our nation or whatever. And so, you know, what choice do we have but to destroy them? And it doesn't really matter because they're not real people.
1: Or even if we don't say destroy them, lock them up, I think is the current version of the war cry around these all of us Um, non-people. There's another one that that you described that I hear from Donald Trump all the time, but not just Donald Trump, the whole right-wing ecosystem. And that's this funny word, paralypsis.
2: Yeah, so a paralypsis, colloquially, the definition is I'm not saying, I'm just saying. And don't you're right Donald Trump loves it. It's ironic it allows someone um, typically on the right but not always to say two things at once. And so it's a great strategy to use if you don't want to be held accountable you want to have plausible deniability for what you're saying you know so you wouldn't say um, you know my opponent is this is Donald Trump right So my opponents are all speech. I'm not saying that. Uh, You know, I don't want to get in trouble. But if you were to ask me, I might say, you know, they're all just weak. Um, Or he would retweet things. And then he would say, well, I don't know. I didn't look into it. I just retweeted. I didn't tweet it. I just retweeted it. Right. So you can't hold me accountable. I didn't say it. I'm just saying it. So
1: what am I missing in this? It's like, where would you place all that lying about crowd size?
2: Those are ad populum appeals, um, right? Mm. So he he uses ad populum to show um, how important he is. It's very circular. So it's, you know, my people are the best people. My people love me. There's so many of them. You know, you can see them. They're here. They're powerful. Um, and they're right because they're here. Because I'm right. They're here. <laughs> Right. Right. So every time he talks about crowd size, he's making an ad populum appeal to Mm -hmm. his own strength and also praising his followers.
1: So all of this together combines to be some kind of a narcotic that we it sort of dulls our our ability to think and to make judgments and instead um, whips us into a a one side of a fight and, and makes people ready to fight.
2: Yep. And it's war rhetoric. Absolutely. It's war rhetoric. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, as, as you, and this is very helpful. And I think people sort of learn a lot from, from putting a name to these tactics these, these are ancient tricks though. So um, let's take a quick break. Cause I haven't done that yet. And when we come back, let's talk about some of the things that are new. Stay tuned. We will have more with uh, Dr. Jennifer Murcieka when we get back. You're
0: listening to the big picture with Edwin Eisendraff on WCPT
1: 820. Okay. We are back. I'm talking to Dr. Jennifer Murcieka, who is a, a historian of political rhetoric. Um, before we go on and talk about where we are today i i don't want to leave the conversation we just had with our audience thinking all rhetoric is horrid right we've been talking about the warlike use of rhetoric but great writers do things that astonish us right with 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 tools of rhetoric it's not it, it, it isn't only always used to obscure is it
4: No, absolutely. Um,
2: You know, just like anything else, communication, rhetoric, persuasion, those are all tools. And they can be used in ethical ways or they can be used in unethical ways. And and sometimes it might even be ethical to use war rhetoric. You know, for example, if you're the president of the United States and, um, you know, there are threats that are legitimate uh, to the nation or to our allies, um, you know, war rhetoric would be appropriate at that time. Um, I wrote a, a statement for the record for the January 6th committee, and I showed how Donald Trump used war rhetoric to attack America. That, to me, is inappropriate, <laughs> right? When the president is using war rhetoric against his own nation, that's not an appropriate use of war rhetoric. Um, and so, you know, like anything else, there's, there are tools and, and some strategies are appropriate and ethical in some contexts and very much not in others.
1: In others, yeah. Thank you for that. So, so so you were telling us before, we know much more about human cognition. And, and that allows, um, I guess, better targeting of rhetoric. We also have this new phenomenon of social media and the vast amounts of dark money coming into politics. I suppose we also have Something that looks like covert ops, you know, bots and fake accounts or people in organization pretending to be what they are not. How does all of this come together?
2: Yeah. um, So just to take one example, repetition. So, you know, um, Hitler wrote Mein Kampf as a propaganda manual, um, right? It has the content that he thought people should circulate. It has strategies for how to communicate most effectively to spread his messages. Um, and it was, he had a history of working in propaganda. He was obsessed with propaganda. And so he wrote Mein Kampf to serve that end. And one of the things that he writes about um, in that book is about repetition. And he says that you should repeat the same phrases, you should repeat the same concepts over and over and over again, um, and that you should do this because that way people will remember them. And even the least educated among your audience will understand your concepts and and will get them. And so he was right. (laughs) And we know now why he was right. Um, So, you know, like I said, evolution and cognitive science has helped us to understand how repetition works, how it works on our brain, how, um, you know, it creates um, a more fluent processing of information so that, you know, the first couple of times you hear information, it it takes some cognitive effort in order for you to understand it. But the more fluent you become with that information, the more you see it, the more you start to believe it, you actually start to like it more because... It's so much easier for your brain to process it, um, right? And so then, okay, we know that now because it's cognitive science. So then take that and put it into the context of social media. All you see on social media is networks of propagandists, um, right, fighting the info wars, circulating and amplifying one another's messages. Um, And in fact, the whole structure of something like Twitter is designed to get us to repeat the same messages over and over and over again. Um, you know, if you sign up for any politics organization or, or politics-adjacent organization campaign, you know, you're going to get email requests from them that say, um, you know, here's this issue. Aren't you really angry and mad about it? Aren't you outraged? Now take this script and put it on all of your social media accounts flood the zone with zombie political messages, right? Those are all repetition strategies designed to make those messages flood the zone, right, to use Steve Bannon's words, um, and to make them, you know, very easy to process, um, right? The more you see it, the more you're going to believe it, the more you like it, the more you're going to remember it, the more you're going to circulate it.
1: Is the is the way to fight that to flood the zone with other messages or – uh, uh, is or to take them on directly? What, what's the what's the best thinking about yeah.
2: that? Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends on whether you're a political strategist or whether you're interested in democracy. So, um, for political strategists, obviously, they're going to fight flooding the zone with flooding the zone. And so, you have people on the left, you have people on the right, people on all you know sides, trying to control our public discourse. By flooding the zone with these messages that are prescripted, those messages probably don't persuade people. um, But, you know, they do circulate. Right. And they because of the repetition, they, um, you know, they become very familiar to everybody. Um, But that's not democratic deliberation. Right. So people in my field would study. You know the processes by which people come to agree, form consensus, you know, resolve difficult decision making, um, you know, solve problems, and and flooding the zone isn't a strategy for solving political problems, right? It's a strategy for propaganda. It's a strategy for controlling the
4: discourse.
1: Okay, so that's really interesting, and, and let me take a an aside. We talk a, a lot of time on the show about the difference between. Politics and governing, and, and there really is one. And you you use politics to gain the levers of government. But then you have to be able to use them. And then and using them um, is about problem solving, about bringing people together, about um, working through the challenges we face, or finding and taking advantage of the opportunities in front of us as a country, right? But that politics, when you have elections where there's one winner and one loser, that doesn't. It, it's a different animal a little bit. So. Um this distinction that you're making is a really interesting one. I, I, I would say my own observation is that in the world we 're in today, one party sees governing and politics, sees governing as an extension of politics and doesn't see them as different um, a- activities And, and th- I think that's truly dangerous.
2: Yeah, I think um, the Republican Party is trying to destroy the government. Um, so I don't think they're trying to actually effectively govern um, once they have power. I think they're trying to use the government to destroy the government.
1: Well, what do you put in? Very uh, strong I, statement. <laughs> I, no, very, very strong statement. And, and I think I agree, but I'm not sure I can. I, I know I agree to take the next step and tell me what is in place when the gov- after they destroy the government. Yeah, mean destroy the democracy I or destroy the government. I think they <laughs> want to destroy, destroy the, the democracy.
2: Oh. Well, they might and, want to destroy put- the democracy, too. But I mean, really, this is so I wrote a, um, a piece about Donald Trump as an anarchist. And part of what I meant by that is not the sort of left wing anarchy idea, um, but anarchy in the sense of taking the established political system and destroying it. And so um, there was an interview that uh, New York Times um, journalist David Sanger and Maggie Haberman did with Trump in, I think it was March of 2016. Um, and they published the transcript, and it was just such a fascinating conversation. It's the one time when I saw Trump respond directly to, well, when was America great? right? So you say you're going to make America great again. When in your mind was America at its greatest? And he answered that it was during the Gilded Age, right? So before the reform Mm -hmm. that allowed any protections for individuals, right? Before FDR's version of what the state was supposed to be about um, and how it was supposed to function. um, And he said the Gilded Age was so great because there was this incredible economic engine that was, you know, sort of changing everything and building everything. And, um, and so that's what he wanted when he was thinking about making America great again. Um, and so that's also an era where there was incredible, um, you know, gaps between the wealthy and the poor. There were no protections for individual citizens. There were hardly any rules and regulations. Right. So this is before any of the early 20th century reforms were made um, to restrain business. And, um, that's Trump's ideal. And so if
1: you unfettered look at corporate power, unfettered, right. um, uh, wealth that's allowed to do whatever the ego of the owner thinks would be fun. Um, I live in Chicago, Upton Sinclair wrote the jungle about the lives of people who, uh, uh, are subjected to that world um and pe- it's still a good read for those of you who are listening and want to imagine what most of you will be living in if we ever come to that again
2: yeah it's not um it's not a great future for most of us um, and so <laughs> and so if you look at who he staffed his you know cabinet with, they were they were people who wanted to dismantle those things that they were in charge of. Right. Um, and, and I think that that's what we have in store for us if if Trump gets reelected.
3: Yeah, and just so
1: everyone listening can can be clear about this, um, this what I've long called illegitimate Supreme Court um, is is doing everything they can to limit the power of government to regulate industries, to protect the environment, or to protect workers, um, and they're doing everything they can to eliminate uh, any restraints on wealth in politics, right? So Citizens United said, these companies are people and can spend whatever they want to spend in dark money. Well, actually they said there won't be dark money, but they were just demonstrably wrong. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, uh, Let's, let's focus on one of these things um, that you've talked about a little bit more. And that's the real dangers of the authoritarian attempt to define what America is Who's an American, and by design, then, who is not an American? And I, I just tell you my story of the day that the uh, news media all agreed that Joe Biden was president. Remember, we had after that last election, we had a few days of vote counting before anybody was, before the m- media were willing to call the election, right? And then they all did one day. And that day was a beautiful day here in Chicago. And I took out a great big American flag and I walked around carrying it proud of my country for having thrown a tyrant out of office. But people looked at that flag and they weren't sure that that's what it stood for. They thought, are you just a Trumpist? Because of the way the right has said, we own that flag. And I would go to people and say, nope, I'm really happy with what just happened. And they don't get to keep this. It's not a partisan symbol. But I had to have that conversation 20 times. Talk about the dangers right. of of one side gets to be who we are and everybody else is not.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's been fascinating for me to think about this, and I don't know if I have you know all the answers yet, but one of the things that I think is really clear is that the right has been determined to define who is American, what America is, what policies are and are not American, right? They use that word as if it has meaning for them. Um, And then they use it as they create meaning, uh, right? And argue for why, you know, sort of their version of America is the real America. It's very essentialist, um, you know, like I talked about with ad populum, right? So, Our people are the real Americans. We're the best people, the hardest working people. Those people, they're not even Americans. Aren't they all groomers? They're communists, they're whatever. So it's very much appealing to, you know, an us versus them. We are the good people. You know, they are not, they are evil. Um, And so it's very much about polarization and using their definition of America as a wedge. Uh, And at the same time, people who are more moderate, people who are on the left, um, you know, they're not willing to embrace that term. They're not willing to say, yes, I'm American. Yes, the policies that I want are American, too. Um, Right. And so it does make it seem as though the right um, has this claim to this country uh, and that it's being taken away from them. And and so you you see strangers in their own land and, you know, these, these conversations about how, um, you know, the, the white people or the, the Trump people or whoever it is, you know, however it's framed in the media, you know, that they're, they're the real Americans and this is their country and it's being taken away from them through diversity or through, you know, wokeness or, or whatever. Um, and that's a very enticing narrative. And in fact, it's enticing on both sides. Because on the the right, you have, well, this is mine and I'm going to fight for it. And on the left, you have, you know, well, we're taking it from them, (laughs) but we're not going to call it America. Um, And it just seems like it's really unproductive um, for the left to ignore those claims of like, we're America, too. And the policies that we want are American. Um, And then like sort of fighting over what it means.
1: Yeah, well, I, I I I can disagree with you slightly here because on on this show at least, um, and this is a a left leaning. I'm a, I'm not a journalist. I'm a partisan, but I want to be an intellectually honest one. Um, a lot of people claim to claim that this is America, and we have a dream for it, and that's an inclusive, broad dream. And and I'm not willing to cede. Like I said, I went out with an American flag, not willing to cede uh, right. the definition of the country to people who want to define it narrowly. Um, and let me ask you a question. Is this? Do you think there's a relationship between the strategies of defining um, America in a narrow way and defining other people out? Is that just um, by all of Western history? Does that just... Mean you're going to be living in a time of rising anti-Semitism.
2: Well, anti yeah, rising anti-Semitism is certainly a consequence of it, or or any kind of anti right. I mean, so anti-Semitism, um, you know, any kind of racism, all of those things are about laying claim to you know essentially a piece of land and an idea, and saying you know that this nation is ours and not yours. Um and I mean there's a lot of ambiguity I think on the left, you know, about America. They like they're they're not sure that this is a place they want to claim is theirs, that its history is fraught with violence. Um right. And so, you know, it's hard to say if you're on the left, like, I'm an American with pride. Um and, and I yeah, think that I, that's, that's something that that's, they need to work on. Interesting. Um, yeah, I'm not, an, that, a child of an immigrant, and so yeah, I think that, yeah. you know, for I'm sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. Yep. Oh, I, well, I'm well, a child well, of an immigrant, and I come from a long line of, you know, immigrants on both sides of my family. And so for me, I think I have a real strong identity as an American, um, but I don't see that so much in public discourse
1: that's interesting that's interesting all right everybody this there's there's a um, action point for all of you who are listening you know be proud of the nation you're part of be proud that you're in a nation that can actually acknowledge that it is not perfect that it has a ways to go and that we can have a better future than the past we had that's part of what you should be proud of and that's not something to run away from nobody's perfect nobody's history is perfect but the fact that we can look at it honestly and make it better for everybody is something really remarkable. Be proud of it.
3: Uh. Right.
2: And I think that's part of what Biden was arguing in his speech the other day. You know, he's so defending too. democracy and defending the nation and saying, you know, America is an unfinished project. It's an idea. It's always striving to be more American, you know, to live up to its own values and ideals
1: yeah i I uh like that about us I do. <laughs> um, we do let's talk about one of those platforms where uh bits of rhetoric get repeated and repeated and repeated and that is twitter um, it's important for um certainly the news profession uses it enormously um, but so now do uh uh Political workers and election workers to talk about. Oops, you know we had a flood. We have to change where this polling place is and let people know. But but just in time for the election, uh, Twitter is falling apart. You had your own, I think, appalling experience this week with Twitter.
3: Do
1: you have anything you want to talk about about that?
2: Um. Yeah, I mean, my experience on Twitter has been mostly positive and good. Um, I block a lot of people or accounts. I don't really know if they're people. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it's been a very productive space for organizing and disseminating information. But it's also a site for information warfare, you know, right? Like I said, mm-hmm. it's about flooding the zone and as much as it is about um, having conversations. So for academics like me, Twitter has been fantastic because it has allowed us to engage with people who aren't our students or our colleagues necessarily, you know, to really sort of um, get information out into the public um, about research and, you know, about ideas. And, and so it's been really good because so much of that is behind paywalls and, you know, not accessible to, to people. And so, um, you know, there's a real need for academics to be able to communicate with the public. And and Twitter has been great for me and, and lots of academics that I know um,
1: for mm-hmm. that purpose. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, we need to take one more break. Um, when we come back, um, let's talk about um, uh, nurturing counterfactual words, worlds in the Way our ecosystem is set up. I'm talking to Jennifer Mercieka, who is a historian of American political rhetoric. We will be right back.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraff on WCPT 820.
1: Welcome back, everybody. I'm in the middle of a conversation with uh, Dr. Jennifer Mercieka, who is f- fascinating on the topic of how rhetoric uh, puts us in the places we find ourselves you know, how to use it well and how to use it um, unethically. Um, We're going to be, you know, after the election, uh, the world goes on and there'll be holiday time and people will be with family and they'll be with family members who have been on the opposite side of the election that we will have just been through. And I, 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 I think we need to explain to people how, our divided information ecosystem contributes to sort of nurturing um, in some cases completely counterfactual worlds so that people have some understanding of how their cousin got where you know she is and what they might be able to do about it
2: yeah it's really um it's really destructive. <laughs> Um, for, for the public sphere, but um, essentially the way it works today is that most people avoid the news and avoid information about politics. Um, only about, well, 67% of Americans say that they don't regularly read the news or watch the news. They don't pay for subscriptions. They don't you know talk to people about the news. And um, And there's another study uh, in a book called The Other Divide, which I recommend, that's about the difference between people who are incredibly engaged with politics, people like you and me and probably all of your listeners, and the rest of the nation. And they argue that between 15 and 20 percent of Americans are actually highly engaged in politics. They watch the news every day. They probably read the news all day long. They feel uncomfortable if they're doing something and they miss a news event. Um, You know, they probably are on Twitter, you know, having discussions about politics, um, certainly perhaps correcting people if (laughs) they have wrong opinions about information on the Internet. Well, it turns out that that 15 to 20 percent, those people who are highly politically engaged, And really the only ones who are paying for news content have completely changed the political ecosystem because the news now matches what they want. Um, And they want highly politicized, a lot of times outrage-based news and information. They only want information that confirms their priors. Um, And so they seek it out and they find it. And news media are very um, willing to provide that to them, right, because these are the paying customers. And so it has really, really increased polarization. It's uh, increased polarization of the news media and it's made it so that it's very difficult for us, you know, at our Thanksgiving conversations or whatever, dinner, um, you know, to to chat where we have any kind of common ground Um, because the way that we consume this very polarized news and information um creates an us versus them worldview Uh, and it makes it difficult to share information in any way at all Uh, my dad listens or watches i should say um conservative news and um you know we used to just talk about politics and news and information current events all the time you know my whole life and we've really gotten to the point where um, I mean, we sort of laugh like, oh, are you going to watch your propaganda channel again? <laughs> um, you know, which is funny, but not funny. But it's the only way that we can really sort of acknowledge it. Because when we try to talk about politics, we just don't share any news in the same way. We don't know any facts at the same, um, in the same way. So I have two uh,
1: questions about what you just told me. One goes to, is this a case of a false equivalence, really? Because the data, for instance, on Fox News shows a partisanship that's diff, that's not that's not just a right-wing version of MSNBC, but a captured part of a party that isn't, um, for instance, they have on right-wing, I said, Republican candidates, far greater number to talk about their stuff than MSNBC does. So I, it, are they the same thing? Or is this not quite an equivalence? That's sort of one question. Then I have another one right after.
2: Okay. Yeah. So um, absolutely. The O Fox Max is what I call it. Um, The Mm O Fox Max news ecosystem um, is very self-contained. It's very one-sided and it's not equivalent. There is no equivalent on the left. Um, But I mean, there just isn't and um i mean i just saw analysis of who you know who they had on for guests and it was just repeatedly their own you know candidates yep. republican candidates yep. Whatever. Yep. um you don't see that on mainstream news and you don't see that on the left um so, but so there, is there it hear them
1: to to say that it isn't really that that the, the, there's been increased polarization. The other way to think about it, and people have said it, is that most people the, most people in the center and the left occupy a place that's not completely dissimilar to where it was five and 10 years ago, um, but that the right has sort of launched very far to a different place and radicalized. So the, the, the gap between us is bigger than it's been, but it's not really about both sides running away from each other.
2: Um, well, I don't know if that's accurate. Um, okay. There's a few data that shows that, yeah, the gap is wider, but that the average Republican is now much further to the right than the average Democrat, and the average Democrat is much further to the left than the average Republican. But there's other data that show that both have scooched to the right. Um, and that it's not that there's a right word lean. So I think there's conflicting data on that. Yeah, but yeah. what I'm trying to say is that the news media itself used to work on a paradigm that was uh, the le- least objectionable programming, right? And this is, you know, before cable, really, where you had yeah. three networks and you had people who would sit through, you know, the news because they wanted to watch I Love Lucy later and, you know, there were only three options or whatever. And so they did that. And the news tried to keep as many people as they could. And so you would see, you know, a sort of Republican perspective. You'd see a Democratic perspective. You had the equal time law, which wasn't perfect, but meant that they at least tried. And so what happened is that as all of these different options from cable and everything else emerged. We
1: were fractured. Time,
2: we Not only did we mm-hmm. fracture, but if you were a Republican, and of course the Republican Party of the 1980s isn't the Republican Party of today, but whatever. If you were a Republican and you, you stopped seeing your perspective being represented in the news, it felt like it was moving to the left, right? So that's, and that's what but started I, to happen. Yeah, and so then they created their own media ecosystem. Yeah, they attention. sure did. But you know,
1: in, in the old world where there were three networks and we were all sort of pushed to a comfortable middle, right? The stories that you didn't hear were stories of, I mean, uh, black America. They barely existed, right. and we all, and those stories never got told. Um, Absolutely. But that right, and and that's just one of a thousand right people that we thousand. Groups of Americans whose total experience was ignored in that world. So it's, it's. I have very mixed feelings about the about the trade off.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's never been. It's never been good. <laughs> yeah. it's never been yeah. perfect, and it's never been good. Um, I mean, yeah. right. So media gatekeeping is a real thing, and yeah. the world we live in today, there's much less gatekeeping because that's not possible with social media, right? We can all tell our stories. Yeah. Um, and that has that has absolutely changed how we perceive reality um, and so yeah, I mean that's a whole other issue really, but, yeah. but an important one.
1: Well, the other thing that was interesting in what you said is that fifteen to twenty percent of us and and that includes me, who are highly engaged in the yeah. uh, media that it that this nonsense that we see is our fault. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we sort of push yeah. the news to this place. And um, that, that yeah. is a this good, is like, look-in-the-mirror moment.
2: It really is interesting. It's what Ezra Klein argued in his book about why we're polarized. Um, and so, yeah, if you if you read what he wrote in that book and you read this other book that's written by um, political scientists called The Other Divide, you really yeah. get this idea. Yeah, there there are just a few of us and we're politically engaged. We're political true fans. We're you know, we're like the compound of politics being obsessed with it night. You know, we know all the ins and outs and the characters and you know expect expect plot developments and you know, we're into it, right? And it's like if you're you're not into it and you try to talk about politics or enter into anything to do with politics and you try to have a conversation with one of those political true fans and probably all of our listeners here, um, you know, it's going to be weird. (laughs) You're not going to know what's going on. You're not going to know the storylines. It's going to sound like minutia. It's going to sound insane.
1: Well, that's why we only have a minute left. Um, I, I, Try to talk to people not only about politics, but to set it aside and talk about government. Okay, here's the problem. Here's what people are doing on the policy side, and, and we can talk about that. That drains the swamp a little bit and lets us find more common ground, I think.
2: Yeah, and and there just isn't enough of that kind of um, news reporting, right, about actual
4: policy
1: Right, because it's easier to talk about, I don't know.
3: The horse race right and the
4: right
1: or, or, or Right, or throw up, you know, as they are in Iowa in the closing arguments. I know the difference between right and wrong and boys and girls. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it, listen, thank you. I, as always, very interesting and very helpful for people to get the uh, mental framework around the rhetorical arsenal that is directed our way. I'm grateful for your time. Thank you. We will talk sometime after the election and I'll be interested in your thoughts about what contributed to what.
3: All right, everybody.
1: thank Thank you. That was Dr. Jennifer Murcieka, um, historian of American political rhetoric at Texas A&M University. We're going to take a break uh, for the news. And when we come back, the incomparable David Pepper joins me.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentrath on WCPT 820.
1: Welcome back, everyone. I really wanted to have David Pepper back on one more time before the polls closed. David has worked, uh, you know, harder than anyone in the country to explain to the rest of us the problem of radical gerrymandering. He is also the author of a thriller, A Simple Choice, and the nonfiction Laboratories of Autocracy, where he explains uh, what's going wrong in the States. Please follow him on Twitter, as long as that's still an option. Um, uh, It is still an option, isn't it, David? It still
5: is, but... And I'm not going anywhere, but it, it may implode. It really is nuts what's happening. So, um, grab your lifeboats. Hopefully, there's another uh, social media outlet out there that'll do the same thing. To-
1: do the quickly. same thing. Yeah. Hey, you would have loved the conversation I just had. It was with a prof- a historian of American political rhetoric, and she gave us a uh, a real sort of schooling in the arsenal that's arrayed against. Uh, our democracy i thought it was very smart and helpful as a writer i think you would have loved it interesting well, all right let's let's get sort of granular first and talk about um the ohio supreme court races and how your friends in the gop in that state hope to retroactively okay their illegal maps
5: yeah i mean it's just it's it's an incredibly disturbing sequence it- Again, and you've heard me say this before. If we saw what was happening in another country, we would recognize it as just an outright assault on the rule of law and the checks and balances that we basically have always valued in this country. So, you have a situation where um, the, the citizens of Ohio twice voted to change the constitution to prohibit gerrymandering. Seventy percent of the Ohio of Ohioans voted for these very specific rules, that, could have prohibited the kind of partisan gerrymandering that has really hurt our, poisoned our politics everywhere, including Ohio. We then, and I was proud of this, I was chair of the Ohio State Party when this happened. We had a 7 0 Republican Supreme Court, and we managed to win three out of four races in two years. So going into this year, we had a, a Supreme Court of Ohio, three three Republicans, three Democrats and a moderate chief justice, a moderate Republican. Well, that court took very seriously uh, its role of protecting this new gerrymandering uh, constitutional uh, rules, and the legislature clearly did not. Seven different times the legislature drew maps that clearly were in violation of these new rules. And it was obvious when you saw the maps. They didn't try at all to follow the rules. And the court struck down every single one of these attempts, but the legislature just continued to just defy a court. Um, And so much so that they literally placed on the Ohio ballot, which are currently on our ballot. People are already voting. Maps that have been found by the Ohio Supreme Court to be in violation of the House Constitution. We're voting on illegal maps as we speak. And here's the trick, though. The legislature is so frustrated that this court wouldn't just do what they wanted, which is what they always did in the past. They actually changed the rules by which we elect supreme courts with an election. But until this year, it had never been an election with a party ID on the ballot. Well, they added party ID in the hopes that these races would be viewed as as, as partisan as as every other race. And so here's what their game plan is: if they they basically believe that the new rules will make sure they get Republican justices elected. And so basically what they've been doing for years, is ignoring the law, defying the law, defying the court, as long as they need to get themselves to a friendly court that will then, in, you know, after the fact say, oh, oh, your maps are fine. So it's a rolling one year long constitutional crisis. They will either end because they succeed, which I'm obviously working very hard to make sure they don't, although it's difficult, or we elect ourselves some democrats in this court and we basically keep striking down their maps but again it's it's complicated in a way but it's also very simple it is a it is a group of people in power extremists willing to break the law for an entire year to get themselves a court that will later sort of after the fact say oh you're fine you could it's okay you broke the law for a year we're now going to cleanse maps that we all know are illegal now that's that's how bad it is
1: and how are how are these elections looking? I mean, they, the, the the Republican candidates showed up at the Trump rally. They raised their hands at the you know the cue an uh, uh, anthem. I mean, I I, I can't and, and I can't believe there that people want that sort of thing. I mean, one of them.
3: Yeah, I mean, it,
5: adds, it's it's a real tension between you've got a party line vote in sync with a lot of people. And then you've always had people in the middle. And the question is, I believe if the races are close, then we have a chance because I agree with you. It's offensive. The idea. I mean, what's the vote of what's the point of voting for a court? If all that court is going to do is uphold a legislature, you have no checks and balances. And the reason why I think Democrats were successful three out of four elections to win these races was a sense that we needed some balance. But they added party ID in the hope, you know, they had they an ID, a party ID in the hopes that in a big Republican year, that that would simply mean that everyone just votes all the way through. They literally want the races for judge to be as partisan as the race for everything else so that they just, they're literally, they threaten to impeach the Chief Justice of the Ohio Supreme Court, who's a, mo- a Republican. Why? Because she wouldn't just do what the legislature wanted. She actually felt like her job was. To stand up for the Constitution. So they just have a they have a non rule of law mindset. They just take the a court is there to do their bidding. Um, and but, but here's the problem. If, if, if it's a red wave, then it makes it harder with those races. If it's close, you know, we've seen polling throughout that these judges are getting more of a crossover vote than, let's say, the governor candidate who isn't doing that well. Right now against yep. the incumbent governor, these races have been overperforming those races, just like, you know, in 2020, Trump won Ohio by eight. But the Democratic candidate for justice won by 10. In 18, we won two, even though we didn't win the governor's race. So there has been an opportunity to t- for ticket splitting, but that only works if the top of the ticket is close enough that the people who go cross and vote for the other side, it's enough to get over the hump. So we'll see on election day. But I think our candidates are actually strong. Um, it's three women, very, very authentic women against people who, like you said, literally judges at a Trump rally all holding their hands up like everyone else in the crowd. They've all said basically that women do not have a constitutional right to privacy. And abortion will be one of the first things they take up, whether or not the current abortion ban is legal or not. Um, they've, the, the three justices who are the Republicans running, they basically said from the very beginning, oh, you guys can do anything you want around uh, gerrymandering. We don't care, which is offensive, I think, for a lot of Ohioans. So they're, they're very weak candidates. The question is, do they win because of a wave, or, or is it close enough that our candidates can beat them? The last two cycles, we've beaten them. We have actually we actually are very successful, and the hope is that we can do it again.
1: David, I, you know, I the Republicans for years like to cite one of the Federalist papers, Federal seventy eight, about about judicial overreach. And they were wrong in how they were citing it. But the but the you know the the paper itself is very clear and very compelling that a captured judiciary, a judiciary that is just an arm of the legislature, is a quick path to tyranny.
5: Yeah. You're I, seeing I that you in Ohio. You are. If <laughs> they succeed here. I mean, basically, a judge who's actually values their role as a judge, even if they're a descending, a dissenting judge, should be appalled that the sitting legislature and governor and secretary of the state are violating the orders of the court. Which they are; they're openly violating. They just ignore the court's orders. If you and I did that, we would be in big trouble. But the, the three current justices, the Republicans, they don't even seem to care that the orders of this court are just being violated. So we are very close, and I don't say this lightly. I'm a lawyer. I actually teach law school. I'm a member of the Ohio Bar. We are desperately close to having the rule of law disintegrate in Ohio, and, and that sounds way over the top to say. I don't say it with a political like um, head, you know, um, hat on. I say it with my legal hat on. If you can ignore a court for a year, change the rules of how that court is selected to then get a court that upholds something that that previously was illegal. That's what Orban does. That's not a rule of law system. That's a system where the politics have overwhelmed the rule of law. And that is the risk we have. So I agree. It's very dangerous. And for the life of me, I can't understand why by justices, political leaders, uh, some Republicans who know better, they don't see that we are dangerously close to having a system that I think the average citizen is literally thinking, wait a second, how could we have passed the constitutional change and it's simply ignored? And here's the scary part. I know we talk about Ohio a lot, and I'm sure your listeners want to hear about more than Ohio. This is happening all over. We, we now have in states from Missouri to Florida to Maine, and I write about this in my book, you literally have m- multiple states where the citizens are directly voting through referenda to change their constitutions or statutes to vote direct on statutes. And these rigged extremist legislatures simply do not do the will of the people. We saw it in Florida with the, with the uh, vote by the people to end the the felony ban for on voting. You saw it in Missouri, both with redistricting and Medicaid expansion. These, these little tyrannical state houses who are removed from the voters? The gerrymander—they simply won't do it.
1: And it's so not- you have made this other point that, that is very democracy. helpful. Yeah. Yep. It, it, so so, but like you and I pay attention to that, and maybe twenty percent of America thinks about those kinds of issues because they're because we have the luxury to think about them. Frankly, but other Americans don't think about this stuff. They just want to know, like, why isn't my life better? But you've connected right. these dots, right? You've been able to show how in these these systems where the legislature is unaccountable because of radical gerrymandering, where they aren't accountable because they've captured their courts, the the, the government that they deliver is demonstrably worse. That the lives of the people who are governed by them are demonstrably worse. Talk about that. Make that
5: connection. Yeah, I mean, once you know, it's the same reason that Russia's army is so broken. Like once you have no accountability in politics, um one, the the people in these positions, the incentive, and I think you were in elected office once, right? I, I was I was yeah, a county was. commissioner here. Yeah, yeah, we were both what, what was system here, I was a county commissioner of 50 fifty fifty county. I knew that for re-election, my number one thing needed to be I delivered something good that, that the public would benefit from. I had a incentive to improve public outcomes because I was in a county that, that was close enough. I would worry about my election. So I wanted to be able to say, hey, I improved schools or roads or made communities safer, whatever it is. Once you're in a gerrymandered system, and this is my point out in the book, where almost not a single politician ever wins another election the rest of their careers, all of a sudden there is no incentive for them to deliver good public outcomes. They win either way. Their incentive system all of a sudden is serving private interests in their state capital, and usually those private interests, be it big utility companies or for profit charter school scams, those private interests are usually trying to suck money out of the public system for their profit. Think about Brett Favre. He wanted a tan of uh, you know, money for people in poverty to go to a volleyball court. So you're always seeing this, this group of people who convince the politicians, give the public money to us so we profit. You get some of that money through, in contributions, by the way, and the public outcome that suffers, those people are never held accountable for that public outcome declining. That incentive system basically guarantees that the decline of democracy is not just some academic issue. It leads to dramatically worse results in those communities that no longer have any choice or accountability on their system. And that's why I go through concrete examples in Kansas. They, they eroded their public sphere so much that they only had the school a week in Kansas and, 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 you know, in, in Texas, they privatized the energy grid. Same screw-up incentives. People froze to death. Awful. In, in Ohio, I, I go to towns like this and I take videos of them. Small towns crumbling as their tax dollars are, are literally siphoned away to the state to give out its tax cuts. Everywhere you look where you have these no longer accountable systems, you see dramatic declines in public outcomes that really can't be defended. And you also have extremism way out of touch with the mainstream because the other thing that happens in these locked up systems is if you never worry about your general, you're only worried about your primary, you stop primary, exactly be right. as extreme as possible. So you have this really screwed up set of, of, of incentives and it leads to a downward spiral that, that we're living through in Ohio tragically um, that we're seeing in, in, in it's, it's a combination of terrible public outcomes, corruption, and extremism. And, but what's the one thing once they and once a group of politicians have decided on a course that leads to extremism and indefensible outcomes, do you know what they also have to always do? Continue gerrymandering, because if they ever were actually in a close race, they would lose because everything they have done in an actual democracy would mean they wouldn't get reelected. You know, it'd be easy. You and I could do I'll pick it twice if I were in a 50 50 district against someone who sent a 10-year-old girl to Indiana who was a rape victim getting an abortion, or whose schools had plummeted, whose infrastructure was terrible, it'd be an easy campaign. Well, they know that. So they have to keep gerrymandering because once you're on this course of downward spiral, you really would lose in any real election and they know it. So it has, I mean, in it's fact, course in, Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean, they, David, they they, they they almost have reached the point, or they have in some places, where you really can't further gerrymander, so they have to do the next thing, which is to undermine voting itself, which they're also yeah. doing in state after
5: state. Yeah, they're also and it depends mm. on the state. But in Ohio, the 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 strength of the Obama coalition, even though they gerrymandered and you're exactly right, they gerrymandered Ohio in two thousand one. Not as bad, more intense and expert at it now. But when Obama won Ohio in two thousand eight it was so overwhelming that it crushed their gerrymandered congressional and state house seats. And this happened in other states too, like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, such that Democrats won the state house in Ohio and those other states in 08. And they won the congressional majority in Ohio, believe it or not. It was like 10 mm-hmm. 8, now it's 12 way. So they didn't just set out about re gerrymander 2011, which they did. They also did everything else they could do to destroy the Obama coalition by changing the rules. They purged millions of voters for infrequent voting. That took that literally just took the legs out from under the the diverse voting in places like Cleveland and Cincinnati. Hundreds of thousands of voters off the rolls who never moved, who never died, but they got removed through purging. They went after early vote. Now they're going after drop boxes. So you're right. It's not. So when you have these states that are diverse, Georgia, Ohio, Michigan, they they are really worked up about, you know, it, it can it can really change things. In Ohio, they basically gutted the Obama coalition, so it makes it much harder for Tim Ryan to win because there are so fewer black voters on the rolls in a lot of these uh, counties than there were in 8 and 12. So it, it, they, in, in, in a close state, that change can make all the difference. So, in, in And in, as you said, in recent years, they've also gotten around to election outcomes and election processes. Um, you know, One of the greatest examples of how, how intense this is is, um, by the way, this is very similar to how we got Jim Crow more than a century ago. Um, you know, nobody cared whatsoever about drop boxes when they were in Salt Lake City in Anchorage, Alaska, over the last couple of years. Nobody cared. No one said they were fraudulent. No one said that there was like boat harvesting. No one cared. But when black voters in the pandemic use those same drop boxes disproportionately in atlanta and detroit and philadelphia all of a sudden they've got to get rid of drop boxes so it's always going after the coalition that in these states that are large and diverse threatens them so they're what in 2011 they go after early vote even though before that they didn't care about early vote but obama used it well to organize so it's a combination of gerrymandering and other tools to basically knock out the majority coalition that threatens them. And and they'll, they, they're always finding, you know, the, drop, the, the early vote attacks in 2011 became the dropbox attacks in 2021.
1: Yeah, yeah. Government of the party, by the party, and for the
5: party. Right. Yeah. As I said, if you uh, watch, if we saw this in other country, and this is my word at the media, everything's viewed in a partisan lens here. You always got to give both sides. And we are so overconfident in our democracy, which is a very privileged position. If we saw someone in another country, an Eastern European or former Soviet Republic, we would see it. Wait, you mean the only things, the only types of voting they are making harder are the votes of the other side, the voting that the other side chooses to use? Of course, that's absurd. Or they're changing the rules around how one side of the political spectrum protests. In making those uh, the, that type of protest illegal, they're banning books. I mean, we would literally see it as a five alarm fire of democracy, and here it just gets lost amid a, a lot of other. You know, we don't watch state houses. We assume everything's okay in America. That could never happen. Uh, it just, you know, it's it is a really it's it is the typical sort of the you know the the frog boiling in a pot. And I'm worried that people are finally waking up to it. I think. But I don't think we're responding in the robust way uh, that we need to. Uh, and by the way, one, one example of this, and I don't mean to be negative about I'm a Democrat, a fellow Democrat. I, I was glad that Joe Biden gave that speech the other day about democracy. But I wish Merrick Garland were giving a speech right now saying, if you are sitting in a poll intimidating voters, you are violating federal law and you will be held accountable. We need to not just say it's up to voters to save us. There are obligations on government To protect voters from intimidation And violence And I think we've learned a really painful lesson Both at 16 and and January 6 It doesn't help to do it after the fact We should be much more Proactively protecting voters Than we have been And I I worry that people still aren't Seeing the threat for what it is And acting proactively to to deal with it
1: Yep I hear you and I'm terrified with you so tell us a minute or two about the tim ryan jd vance campaign
5: i mean i, I am so proud of him he's been a, i've been a friend of, uh, and he's been a friend for years uh he's running he's a great run race. race yeah great he race. really is he was in cincinnati this morning i was out knocking on doors actually for a couple hours uh but he he was here this morning uh he's hanging in there i i think that that um that it's back to the question I said earlier about the Supreme Court races. He's way overperforming the governor's race. The question is, is that, you know, he's getting 20 percent of the votes that are going to the Republican governor, Mike DeWine. Mm -hmm. In a normal turnout, if it's relatively even, you win if you're overperforming that much. He's making real inroads with independents and winning independents. I think he's he's picking up a bunch of Republican votes. The question is, you know, again, one thing that everyone has to remember across the country We're in the midterm where we have the white house. That is almost always a loss for the party in the white house. So the fact that these are close is actually normally not, not the case. And I think the Dobbs decision, the terrible candidates on the other side, like JD Vance and Herschel Walker and others have made midterm races far more competitive than normally are. I mean, I was a candidate in Ohio statewide in 2010 and 2014 those were really tough years because the trend is so Tim is way overperforming. My guess is he's depending on the turnout model, he's still right around tied. but, but he, we're going to need a surge. I think this is true everywhere. There needs to be a surge, a real surge. And some, some will tell you what's happening in the early vote. And hopefully that's the case of younger voters. That looks more like a presidential than a midterm. And yep. if that's, if that's out there and if that's happening or if, We can all make that happen by Tuesday. I think we can overperform a typical midterm and someone like Tim who's run a great race can win and we win some Senate races and maybe we pick them up. If it turns out that it's a typical midterm turnout and the Republicans show up and we show up less because it's a midterm, then I think it's hard for Tim. So I think that, you know, all you could do in an election if you're a candidate is put yourself in a run the best race you can Put yourself in the best position possible to win, and then hopefully everything your party and everyone on the ticket has done gets a turnout to the point where it's enough to carry you over. Tim's certainly positioned himself to win, and now he needs sort of a high enough turnout that all that hard work pays off in a victory. Yep. Uh, and, you know, I, 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 you know, if, if you told Mitch McConnell a year ago that he'd have to spend, you know, 40, 50, 60 million, and other groups would spend, you know, twice that to win the Ohio Senate race, he would have thought it was the worst news he'd ever gotten. Um JD Vance has been a terrible candidate. He's a real phony. I think that's clear to people. Um so it acted as competitive is not something that anyone would expect a year ago. So we'll see what happens. Tim's I also think Tim has shown something, hopefully nationally, about how you can run in a tougher state if you run the right way. And hopefully people learn that lesson that if we're going to ever get to the mid fifties of Senate seats, you have to run and support candidates like Tim and states like Ohio. Um, and my worry is the national democratic party who has not been very helpful with Tim are running a very sort of, um, you know, close to the vest, short, short sighted strategy of not going for broke in some of these other states. If we're ever going to get close to 60, we're going to have to win.
1: We're going to have to win, and and if there's ever a, you know, I mean, there are a couple candidates on our side who really should win. I mean, the d- difference between uh, Tim Ryan and JD Vance is e- epic, right? I mean, the the difference in Georgia is epic between the candidates. It's not even close in terms of character, in terms of integrity, in terms of talent, in terms of understanding yep. what government can do, in terms of commitment to people to do the job well. It's not even a, it's just, there's nothing that is comparable on the other side.
5: Absolutely. I mean, if you have, again, remember, it's a midterm where we have the White House. That's tough. In yep. a normal year, this would be, I mean, I think, War. Look at Warnock had to beat a tough competition two years ago than Herschel Walker, and he, right. If you had a, if you were not in this midterm, if this were the eighteen cycle, I think Tim Ryan beats J.D. Vance by ten points. Uh, same with same with these other matchups. with some real goofy people. I mean, I think I think this guy in uh, Franklin and... them. Um, and was yep. really good against grass really good Put that in the non-midterm of of this again it's a tough it's just it, it's just politics it's not how it works we gotta show so, up gotta show yeah, up but you and so we have some really good matchups we just have to again and this is true especially if your listeners young voters are the key to it all young voters and you know this from from being in chicago Obama would not have been president, especially in 2012, if young voters had not shown up. If young voters had voted 50-50 in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Ohio, and Florida in 2012, Mitt Romney would have been president. If they had been 50-50 in one of those states, and it was young voters that saved the day, and this is a year, if young voters watching the Dobbs decision and watching this sort of really scary right-wing stuff, women... If they if they see what they need to see, and I try and explain this to my wife, reports, the entire right wing agenda is aimed at young voters futures. You know, you can't be yourself. You, you don't you don't have a right to an abortion access that your parents did. You're not going to get Social Security like your grandparents did. You know, we're not going to let you get taught in schools our real history. You're going to get stuck holding the bag on climate change. It's all aimed at future generations. And I have two yep. an eight and a five year old. They're paying the price. And they do this because they don't think young voters are going to vote. So they, they right. just take it out on them. And young voters have it in their hands right now. If young voters show up in bigger than expected numbers in four days, we win everything. That's just a fact. And so well, like, that's got
6: to be the last
1: word, I'm afraid, because we've run out of yeah. time.
5: It's well, a that's great last word. On, though. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. We'll and
1: talk after the election. Good luck out there.
5: Thank you. Thanks for all your, all that you're doing. You, you really helped lift up a lot of important messages and a lot of important people.
1: Thank you. All right. All right, everybody, uh, the great David uh, David Pepper, and let's let's uh, all do what we can to help in Ohio. We're going to take a quick break. And since he mentioned Iowa, we're going to turn to Iowa next. Stay tuned.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.
1: Welcome back, I am now joined by Laura Bellin, that very astute observer of Iowa politics. She publishes The Bleeding Heartland, which I think I've told you is indispensable for understanding the state. Uh, we, you know, we've been talking about Iowa on this show for you know more than a year because I've told you that it's really important for our understanding of America. Much more important than most people realize And guess what? Much more competitive than most people expected. Laura, welcome back.
4: Thanks. It's great to be here.
1: Set the table for us by talking about the Senate and gubernatorial races.
7: Well, the Senate race is really hard to gauge. We have Chuck Grassley. Running for an eighth term. He is in the race of his life. Truly, he has not lost an election since the first time he was elected in 1958. And since he's been in the Senate, he's always been reelected by at least a 25 point margin. But uh, there's going to be a new poll dropping tonight, and everyone is anxiously awaiting that. But the last poll that the Des Moines Register published uh, several weeks ago showed him um, only three points ahead of Mike Franken, a retired uh, three star admiral. And a different kind of candidate. It's uh, not somebody from the Des Moines area. He grew up in rural northwest Iowa on a farm, youngest of nine kids, career Navy person. And so it's really, it's a strange race. Uh, it hasn't attracted a lot of national attention. Only in the last few weeks have I seen any outside groups spending any money here. And uh, so I just don't really know. The Republicans are trying to say that they, they, They tried to denigrate that poll and say Grassley's really way ahead, but they just brought Donald Trump in for a rally on Thursday night in the most Republican area of the state. And that suggests to me that they might be a little bit worried about their base turnout. Our governor's race is much less competitive. We have a great Democratic nominee, Diedrida Gere, but she just is uh, so... Um, outspent massively. Our governor has spent more than $5 million. Uh, Dieter Degier's campaign has just not been able to keep up, has had very little paid advertising. And as of a few weeks ago, the governor was ahead by double digits, and still about half of the respondents in the Des Moines Register's poll didn't know enough about Dieter Degier to have an opinion about her.
1: Yeah, $5 million, it sounds like a lot. It's a lot for Iowa, but for a governor's race across the country, not so much.
3: Not yes, so
7: much. I, I, and I mean, our, our 2018 governor's race on both sides, I think, was a much heavier spending race. We yes. had a, a Democratic candidate who was self-financing and was able to get a lot of large donors. I think that a lot of the large Democratic donors, I would say, are demoralized by what's happened. We had wave elections in 2010, 2014, 2016, and 2020. And so that has really hurt Deidre DeGere and, to a lesser extent, Mike Franken, because he's been able to raise a lot of small-dollar donations mm-hmm especially as polls have shown that race within single digits. But it's just been harder for Dieter DeGer to get the resources that she would need. I mean, it's always difficult for a challenger to make themselves known. In Iowa, we have only had two incumbent governors lose reelection bids in the last 75 years. So Iowans just generally like to re-elect their incumbents.
1: Well, your incumbent's closing argument was an ad where she says, Here in Iowa, we know right from wrong, boys from girls, and liberty from tyranny. Seriously?
8: That's what that election's about?
7: It was so offensive, Edwin, and it was very upsetting to see our governor earlier, last year she said that she wanted to sign a bill banning transgender girls from sports. This year the Republican-controlled legislature got that bill to her desk. She signed it. She had a huge signing ceremony with lots of cisgender girls celebrating. It was just a very uh, sad um, display of bigotry, honestly. And She's way ahead. She has every advantage going into the election, and yet she put a lot of money behind an ad that has Uh, hateful message. And I really feel, I mean, that's that's not the only issue I have with the ad. It's also just a vision of Iowa. It's a very white, I mean, there's no, very little diversity in her ad or in any of her ads. And I just feel, um, Dieter DeGere, the Democratic nominee is black. And I just feel like the governor has run a very mean spirited campaign and pushing a lot of buttons that are not certainly the opposite of bringing Iowans together. And a lot of other, Iowa Republican candidates are using this sports, girls' sports, you know, allegedly saving girls' sports as um, they're using it in their campaign materials, either in mailings uh, or online advertising. It's just really sad to see.
3: They fought Title
1: IX. They never supported girls' sports. And now they're rallying to its defense against a threat that doesn't exist.
7: Exactly. I mean, I have looked shocking. around. I have not found... One case, I mean, the governor earlier this year, she said, you know, we need to protect, girls need to have a chance to to win championships and to get scholarships. I have not found any example of one transgender girl in Iowa even qualifying for the state tournament in any sport, uh, yeah. let alone keeping cisgender girls off the team or denying them scholarships. I mean, it's just a completely, uh, it's it's such a terrible overreaction, and it goes along, it goes hand in hand with what other Iowa Republicans are saying, trying to get books out of school libraries that have a diversity of authors, either black authors, indigenous authors, or LGBTQ perspectives. And they just don't, they they really are screaming from the rooftops, practically, that this is a state governed by straight white Christians for straight white Christians. Well,
1: h- hang on, you're... The, the, the man for that crowd was stumping, for, as you say, for Senator Grass. I'm talking about Donald Trump. And, and here's what he said. The Iowa way of life is under siege. We are a nation in decline. We are a failing nation. I, and I got to ask you, do Iowans, do they hate their country, their own country that much? Do they really think we are a failing nation in decline?
7: It's a very... Weird, it's weird watching the political advertising this year in Iowa because the governor is one of our main slogans is uh, here in Iowa, America still works. So things might be bad in other parts of America, but in Iowa, things are going really well. And yet the Republicans running for other offices uh, running for Congress are saying basically Joe Biden and the Democrats are wrecking the country. It's a disaster. It's, times are so hard. Gas prices, inflation, food prices. And so you need to elect Republicans to save the country. So, I mean, which is it? Are Iowans doing great or is it just terrible because Joe Biden is ruining the country there's no, no it's not, in their message at
1: all uh, their message is is whatever it is it's not positive about america it's not realistic and it doesn't acknowledge the hard and good work that's been done by people in government uh, in this country and look at that same rally chuck grassley um he he, he went after the fbi he said i'm not going to give up trying to get political bias out of the FBI. I'm not going to oh, give yeah. up on my own investigation of Hunter Biden and the Bidens. We know the facts and we follow the money. Well, he, what facts, what money, what's he talking about and why it, when Iowans actually have challenges in their lives, why this fantasy?
7: Well, it's interesting. He has been on this Hunter Biden kick for a long time. And, and one I've found it fascinating to watch that Chuck Grassley, for the first time in a really competitive reelection race, days before the election, he's still pandering to the most extreme part of the Republican base. And it's not just at that rally, but he's using his uh, Twitter feed, his his social media to talk about Hunter Biden and these things. And in the 80s and 90s, he positioned himself as someone who would speak truth to power and would defend whistleblowers, and he actually did take on the Reagan administration on a few things, but he's been so subservient to Trump and the party line. He never um, condemned Trump for what he did to Alexander Vindman or to other whistleblowers in the administration, and he's just been on... I really feel that their internal polling must be showing them something that he needs to shore up his right flank, because, like you say, it's not realistic and it doesn't reflect the real world problems and issues that Iowans face. And by the way, our governor, while while Republicans are complaining that times are so hard, she hasn't used up all of the, the rental assistance funds that are from the American Rescue Plan. I was going to have to send some of those back because we didn't use them. We're turning down federal preschool grants that most other states are applying for. And she, by ending our COVID disaster proclamation, she deprived people who receive federal food assistance from getting that extra uh, food assistance that was added during the pandemic, which most states still have, illinois still has, so it's just you know it doesn't it's it's certainly not serving Iowan's interests, and I really don't know what planet they're living on when they're talking about things like it's it's urgently important to investigate hunter Biden
1: uh, right <laughs> i mean <laughs> I, I understand talking about inflation inflation is painful for everybody right and and then then you ask the question well who's got a better answer are tax cuts and corporate giveaways the way to fix inflation or is you know dealing with the supply chain and and you know pushing for an end to windfall profits um, a better way right there's a policy difference here i happen to think democrats have a better answer than the republicans but when But that's that's a fair question. It's on people's minds. You know, the Justice Department appears to be doing its job. There's an active Hunter Biden investigation, you know, and it's not like they talk about their investigations. But that's this right. whole business about the FBI has been corrupted, or we're going to get rid of the IRS agents, or whatever it is, is just code for Look, we think that government should be for our party, not for our people. And if they disagree with the party, then we're going to use government to get rid of them. And that every American should be scared to death.
7: And from Chuck Grassley on down, the Republicans in Iowa are repeating the lie that's been debunked many times about the Inflation Reduction Act, supposedly funding 87,000 new IRS agents who are going to come after middle-income family. But I agree with you. Inflation is something that people can really feel every time they go shopping, and it's important to talk about it. I know Christina Bahannon, who is one of the Democratic challengers in a congressional district, this is the district that the Republican won by six votes in, literally six votes in 2020. And Christina Bahannon has an ad up talking about how inflation, we need to crack down on the price gap gouging and we need to to continue to address the supply chain issue so yeah it's not all um but the republican has the republican candidates have a very simplistic message that biden and democratic overspending has caused the inflation as if every economy in the world isn't dealing with unusually high inflation right now
1: yeah well simplistic and dishonest answers right and and by the way if, if they start to if the Democrats start to answer and, and uh, tell you why that's wrong, then they're just going to say, oh, look, there's somebody over there who's trying to steal women's sports or something ridiculous.
7: Yeah, yeah, it's, okay, a, real, but- it's a real misdirection of public resentment.
1: Yeah. Um And at the beginning of the show, I talked to an expert on political rhetoric and the history of political rhetoric. And, you know, she made me feel like it's really not everybody's fault that they're suckers because we're hardwired for some of this stuff. Um But but seriously, that you have good people in Iowa and you have this Senate candidate who I think has been connecting with people. And that should open up um people's eyes and ears, at least to. An alternative to the screaming, you know, sort of hate-filled, "Hey, it's and awesome. Nobody else belongs in our country." Talk. I'm, I'm sorry that my
7: dog's barking in the background. Yes, and no. You know what makes me your dog's barking
1: in the background, and we're talking about Republicans who are barking at us all the time. So I think it's a good soundtrack for this discussion.
7: It is. <laughs> But The this, this Senate race is interesting because the uh, people are very interested in Mike Franken. I, I, I hear that when he's going around to do events, a lot of people have never met. Of course, there are a lot of people who served in the military in Iowa, and a lot of people have never met a general or an admiral. So there's that kind of interest. And then he speaks. He, this, he's not a professional politician. He re- ran for office once before this, but he doesn't speak in smooth sound bites. And so he answers questions directly. And I I think people find that refreshing, and Chuck Grassley is really locked into his talking points. And I, I certainly have talked to a lot of people who voted for Grassley in the past who aren't this year, and the polling bears that out with multiple polls showing it a single digit race. When, like I said, I mean he's never been reelected with less than sixty percent of the vote.
1: Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. What. Are there what is the impact of these races being felt on all of the down ballot races in the same way? I mean, from from, uh, you know, legislative races to school board races to um, to the congressional races you have there. Do they feel all the same, the same issues, the same um, politics or, or are they finally more substantive?
7: It's hard to generalize because the races – I mean, I think all the Democrats in Iowa wish we had a more competitive race for governor. I think that does yeah. hurt the down ballot. It definitely helps that there's a competitive race for U.S. Senate, are at least perceived to be more competitive than in the past. But we have – three of our four U.S. House districts are competitive and a lot of money is is being spent there. And it's just really hard to feel. We also have some statewide candidates, uh, our Attorney General and State Treasurer and State Auditor who are all Democrats. They're all in tight races. And so it's really hard to feel. I feel like any results from Republicans running the table to a a pretty decent election for Democrats and anything in between wouldn't surprise me because it's very hard to gauge this electorate. Uh, the, The most competitive of the most expensive House race is the one where I live, the Des Moines area, where the only Democrat left in Congress in Iowa, Cindy Axney, is in a really tough race. But you just don't know. It's a, it's a district with a large suburban population. I think that the overturning Roe v. Wade is something that's on a lot of voters' minds. Of course, the Republicans are trying to talk about anything but that. So it's really hard to get a feel for how things are going here.
1: And are young people going to vote? Are they interested? Are they motivated? Is there any evidence that they will buck the usual midterm? I'm going to snooze and stay at home and be, I mean, it's their future.
7: It's really hard to tell. Young voters, as you know, I mean, young voters don't turn out as as high a rate as older voters. The Iowa electorate is pretty old. The majority of voters are over age 50. But in 2018, the youth turnout here wasn't bad. It was significantly up from the 2010 and 2014 midterms. And, of course, the big question is, are more young people going to vote this year uh, because of the Dobbs decision and some other issues? Young voters tend to vote on Election Day rather than voting early. So it's really hard to know. Of course the democratic candidates desperately need a strong uh, turnout of young people, but and that would make a difference potentially in a couple of the house races, but statewide the young even if the young voters turned out at a 100% rate, they would still be so vastly outnumbered by the voters who are over age 50. We just have quite an old electorate here.
1: Okay. So, um when you get past this election, how do the wounds get healed in the state?
7: Well, I don't know because the legislature, which is very uh, likely to remain in Republican control is probably going to pass a new abortion ban next year. Uh, that's going to be very controversial and I'm just I just don't know I mean, there are still a lot of people uh, suffering, don't have adequate housing, don't have adequate childcare, and right now, I mean, the Republican trifecta in this state doesn't seem very interested in solving those problems, so I'm worried. I know I just was talking with somebody who's involved with one of the LGBTQ advocacy groups here yesterday, and they're very concerned about more legislation possibly to attack transgender kids or transgender adults. Um, That seems to be the way a lot of Republican-controlled states are going. So I'm very concerned about it. I did notice our Secretary of State here, who's a Republican, he announced last week that they're going to do two post-election audits they always do an audit of at least one statewide race and they're going to add a second one. And I think that he's concerned even about the conspiracy mongering about rigged elections. And so he's trying to cut that off. I think he's pretty late to start trying to address that. But um, if, for instance, if, one or more of the democratic statewide elected officials are reelected on tuesday i anticipate that there could be a lot of republicans who don't believe in the results or try to claim that that there was some kind of fraud
1: yeah i'm right because if they can get us all to doubt i mean just to doubt that we can make a democracy work then they can get rid of it and put something else in i suppose But we've been running elections and running them fairly for a very long time. Americans actually know how to do this. We do it well. It's just one more.
7: there just isn't any election fraud in Iowa. There, Every election year, a handful of people are found to have cast ballots who are ineligible to vote, um, in many cases by accident, that they didn't realize that their voting rights hadn't been restored after a criminal conviction or something like that. But there's never been any orchestrated election fraud in Iowa, like in the last century. <laughs> you know, there was,
1: Did, there was didn't a you say you had, a, you had a seat decided by six votes? You had a seat decided so I, by six votes. You right, just told decided me that. by six
7: votes, yes. And, I mean, and the Democrats
1: was, did not say, oh, that's a lie. We, we, you It's a lie. We didn't lose. We you actually believe in the integrity of elections, and that's part of being part of a democracy.
7: I mean, it was a disputed, I will say, that it was the the certified total was the Republican won by six votes. And then there were 22 ballots that weren't counted for one reason or another. And there was an election contest that the Democratic candidate tried to bring to the House of Representatives, and she ended up dropping that. It kind of got caught up, frankly, in the January 6th attack, that it was the optics of it were difficult
3: Terrible. to have a
7: Democratic-controlled yeah. House. But yeah. but truly, I mean, there I think there's real doubt about who the winner of that election was when you have a six-vote margin out of almost 400,000 ballots cast... And you look closely at it. I think that certainly she was within her rights to bring that to the House of Representatives under the Election Contest Act. But it was just with the when the Democratic Party was trying to get Donald Trump and other Republicans to accept that Joe Biden won the presidential election. It was a difficult thing to then turn around and try to investigate what happened in this House race, even though the House race in Iowa was really close enough that there was real doubt about the winner.
1: Well, look, everybody's allowed to question, and we have plenty of of uh, process for people to contest the results. But at the end of the day, the contests end, and we move on. And yes, that, and everybody right, and that, has
7: accepted, right? There's been no uh, effort by Democrats to try to undermine the legitimacy of the Republican, Marionette Miller-Meeks yeah. is her name, who's serving yeah. in that House district.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh that's leading by example, but it's one the other side isn't going to pay attention to. Look, politics aside, how are things in Iowa? I mean, that you, you get a skewed view when everybody's trying to say, oh, I'm doing a great job in my state or my state stinks and we need to move in a different direction. How's the economy? How's unemployment? How are people generally? Um, is, the, is it, you know, are people f- f- fleeing the state in in bigger numbers than ever? You know what what would you say about the state?
7: We have a brain drain. We have an ongoing brain drain that's been happening for a long time, and it continues. I mean, the unemployment rate is low here. We tend, even in uh, that the height of recessions, Iowa's unemployment rate is usually among the lowest in the country. It just as even though it goes up and down, it just tends to remain low compared to the national average. We actually have a workforce shortage, and one of the big reasons for that is because we don't have enough affordable childcare and affordable housing. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. an issue in a lot of cities in Iowa they have a shortage of workers and of course our legislature instead of addressing that by raising raising wages and trying to have more affordable housing and funding childcare better instead they try to address that by reducing unemployment benefits for people to collect so i do think that the unfortunately people are going to continue to leave the state we have a lot of people who are educated in Iowa college educated and then they leave for other states because they have student loans to pay off and wages here to Tend to be lower than in other parts of the country, and so we lose a lot of people that way. So, I mean, I would
3: say, yes, that Laura,
1: speaking wrong. as a Chicagoan, I want to thank you for that.
7: Right. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And I mean, it's it's a frustrating situation because I think the quality of life in Iowa is is good, and it, it could be a lot better. But I still think it's good. But unfortunately, we're as the schools, the public schools, aren't as good as they used to be. And then when you add together the shortage of childcare and other things, I mean, it's not as appealing a place to settle down and raise a family as it used to be. Yeah.
3: Well, that's going
1: to be the last word. We'll talk after the election, and you can clean up the mess for all of us to understand. Um, And uh, I hope that it is a very pleasant surprise that young people show up and understand what's at stake and that Admiral Franken um, opens some eyes in the next few days.
7: Yeah, absolutely. It could happen. It's, It's very plausible, and that's what we're all hoping for. So thanks a lot for your interest in Iowa, Edwin.
1: Thank you, Laura. Really appreciate it. Okay, everybody. That was, of course, uh, Laura Bellin, who is a great observer of all things Iowa. Um, She also uh, puts the state's best flowers online, so it's also something to look at. Um, We're going to turn to Michigan to close our pre-election discussion. That's something I'm looking forward to. Uh, Stay tuned. We will turn to Michigan after the news.
0: You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPD 820.
1: All right, we are back. It's a little after three here in the upper Midwest on a fall day, and this is our last conversation before the polls close. Um, I'm taking your calls this hour at 773 763 9278. And Craig Mauger, who is. Uh, with the Detroit News, Um, scheduled to come talk with me about Michigan, and uh, we're still trying to get them. So why don't you call in, and I'll take your calls now, and we'll talk with Craig in a moment. So 773-763-9278. I also, look, I want to, while you're calling, um, I want to say this, and I was going to say this at the end, but I'm going to say it now. This is not the time to stop fighting if you know anyone who is you know young who's thinking of coming to your house for thanksgiving you know, say you can't come if you don't vote right i mean you you heard everybody here on the show talk about how important the youth vote is get them to vote carve out some time the next couple you know this weekend and through election day to help get out the vote and we've talked about this before you have good options they include the Wisconsin Democratic Party, which has lots of volunteer options. Go to wistems.com or .org. You can do either. They both go to the same place, wisdoms.org. Click volunteer and find phone banks and other options that will fit your schedule, and you can help, right? Um, uh, you can even phone bank tonight at 6 o'clock. It's worth doing. Uh, Michigan also needs your help. I mean, Governor Whitmer has done a fabulous job. But as we'll talk about in a minute, the people who are running on the Republican side in Michigan are appalling, appalling in every category. So go to michigandems.com and click all hands on deck. That's what it says. And you'll get plugged right in. You can also uh, go to swingleft.com to find information on national phone bank, canvassing options, bus trips, whatever you want to do to get in, you know, to stay involved right through the end. The Democratic Party is doing phone banking. Go to democrats.org. Sign up. And, you know, if you're in Chicago, we got friends uh, at Indivisible Chicago. They have a a very good, robust, uh, high-impact volunteer options Go to IndivisibleChicago.com and click The Last Weekend. These are viable options to get and stay involved right to the end. And, oh, my gosh, it's so important, so important. All right, um, I'm going to your calls. Brian. Hello,
9: Edwin. Hope you're doing well. And this is your uh, one-year anniversary already?
1: Uh, Passed it, I'm afraid.
9: Wow, how time, (laughs) when you're me and you're older than two thirds of the American population, how fast time flies. I wish you many more years on the air. You do a wonderful job. And I just wanted to say, uh, kind of repeat real quickly what I said last week and I checked in just a couple sources apart from Fox, we know how they lie, uh, but uh, uh, even C-SPAN and CNN, I guess they got a Republican owner or whatever, and they get these people on there and they're saying, uh, they spend 10-15 uh, uh, minutes saying how the Dems are uh, already lost and that uh, the uh, abortion issue is no longer relevant, even though I think, uh, you know, people can, Dems can walk and chew gum at the same time. The economy, uh, an objective look at the economy, the abortion is issue is still highly important. Uh, climate change, global warming, all these issues are still important. And, you know, they can project and try to, uh, uh, whether they get paid to say that, uh, to side, uh, slide it towards the Republican thinking. Uh, uh, pay, nothing's won on paper ahead of time and i still think the dems are going to take the house and the senate and i certainly hope that that's going to be the case and i want to thank you so much edwin for being on the air
1: oh thank you i really appreciate that and you know what you are you are right to be skeptical of and of these late polls um there's actually been a phenomenon where republican junk polls have been um uh, done on purpose and dumped into these these uh, uh, things that we all see, which are really poll averages. So if, you know, if you can fake enough polls, you can change the averages. But look, pay no attention to them, good or bad. They're, all, right, they're three days left. Who cares what they say? Get the people out to vote. That's the only thing that matters between now and Tuesday night. Well, I'll just say
9: really huh? quickly. Right. I voted uh, straight down early, and um, I just i will just repeat what I said last time. Uh, uh, Democrats who are aware of WCPT uh, would be uh, much better served, objectively, to listen to WCPT uh, on radio than uh, the television.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate that. I really do. Thank we you. try.
9: Well you do uh WCPT does a wonderful job, including you. And so uh thank you so much for taking my call, Edwin. And have a wonderful thank day. Thank you,
1: Brian. Yep. Okay, Craig, what is on your mind with three days left?
10: <laughs> Did you say what is on my mind? Yes. Right now, for me as a reporter, it's just getting through. That's what's on my mind right now. How do I get through the next
6: few days? I think it's going to be an election.
1: You know what? I I was taking calls. So let me properly introduce you. Okay. (laughs) I wanted to to end this uh, pre-election period by going back and talking about Michigan, where the difference between candidates could not be clearer. Right. And Craig, who is not just any Craig calling, but Craig monger with the Detroit News is here to help us understand this. Oh, Craig. So let's just go through some of the big races. Gretchen Whitmer and yeah. Tudor Dixon. Right. I mean, the, yeah. the, as it, as everywhere in the country, the GOP is closing their campaign. Right. Their final like our closing message is like how society treats transgender transgender people. I, I get it. It's a hard question, right? But it's a tiny one affecting very few Americans. But it's the centerpiece of the GOP's closing argument in Iowa, in Ohio, in Michigan and elsewhere. Does Tudor Dixon sort of have any ideas about actually governing that will make life better for ordinary Michiganders?
10: You know, I think the point that you're getting at here is, is something that I've been thinking a lot about. Is, uh, there, are, there are closing message? of the michigan republicans has been heavily focused on these cultural issues these social issues and you got to ask yourself why are they doing that and they're trying to paint a a portrait that the democrats are extreme and and they're extreme on maybe these issues that don't affect you directly but look they're extreme you can't trust them to take on inflation because look where their stance is on you know, police funding, look what their stance is on transgender athletes. It's really an interesting uh, messaging strategy that the Republicans are trying to make here at the end. And I, I think really, I mean, Democrats have to take it seriously because they're, you know, they must see something in the in the poll numbers to stay focused on this message so heavily. And, and Tudor Dixon has been on this throughout.
1: Well, how is it? Is it helping her? Because Gretchen Whitmer, You know what does pay attention to these things and she has funded the police and she has governed the state so i I mean i guess Tudor Dixon's focusing on that because she can't really go after these other issues
10: yeah she's trying to she's trying to she's trying to weave something here that's very difficult to do and (laughs) and gretchen whitmer has increased funding for police she's made that a focus uh especially the last couple years of trying to bolster patrols across the state uh, Governor Whitmer has always said, you know, one of her things is to emphasize kitchen table issues, and Tudor Dixon's trying to knock her off her, her, her game on that. But, I mean, largely, it seems Governor Whitmer has a significant lead in this race right now with a few days to go. There's so much polling out there, it can be difficult to tell, as you just referenced, I heard your yeah. point you made to the caller. I mean, there is there have been a flood of GOP polls, but even GOP polls, a lot of them are still showing Gretchen Whitmer with a lead. And, and and Gretchen Whitmer has talked a lot about the economy, what she's done to attract jobs to Michigan and abortion. I mean, abortion has been really the defining issue of this race.
1: Yeah. Between the two of them. Sure. They're very different yeah. positions. Yeah. Well, I, you know, there are governors around the country who sort of obviously, you know, have done the job they were hired to do and are competent to keep doing it well. And she's, Way up on the list of those governors. You know, she kept her promises. She,
10: she, she is someone, especially in the last two years, who has been watching the voters very closely. She has been watching the polling. She's tried to respond to where voters are on things. And that's what has made her more challenging, I think, than some of the other Democrats who are in these battleground states to take out because she has watched those voters in the middle extremely closely. She has been trying to run close to the independents, figure out where they are, figure out what they want, and, and pursue those needs. And that makes it difficult for Tudor Dixon to try to paint her as an extremist. And that's been the hill that Tudor Dixon has to climb.
1: Good. I hope it's steep all right let's turn to let's let's turn to some of the others um you, you, attorney general here you have uh dana nessel who's a very um active attorney general um a- against matt DePerno, who's likely to be indicted for election tampering after the election i mean you know, the justice department is careful not to interfere with elections by telling people what they're going to do afterwards and i have personal experience with this because here in illinois uh, Rod Blagojevich ran for re-election and the Justice Department wouldn't say that they were going to you know, indict him. And after he won, they indicted him. and He got you know, impeached and went to jail. So I get that. So but there again, big contrast between them.
10: Oh, I mean, a huge contrast. I mean, this is really the race to watch in Michigan for for listeners who live outside the state on Tuesday. If you are watching results come in. Do you want to watch a down-ballot race, that's going to mean a lot. This attorney general race is, is just – it's very close. It could go either way with a few days to go, and, and the, the contrast could not be more stark between these two candidates. Dana Nessel is really an unabashed uh, progressive. You know, as, as Gretchen Whitmer has tried to steer to the middle for the last couple of years, Dana Nessel is someone who really – um, always is following her values, and you know uh, she she is she is has a progressive mindset. She has been a fighter for the rights of um, LGBTQ people. That's something that means a lot to her. She's doing a rally uh, with LGBT uh, the LGBT community uh, in Detroit, I believe, this weekend, the final days before the election. She and she's running against someone, Matt DiPerno, who rose to prominence essentially uh, for the first time politically after the 2020 election, because he's a lawyer and he was uh, heavily involved in bringing these uh, this litigation to challenge election results in the state of Michigan. That's what got him the fame uh, that launched his attorney general bid. That's what made conservatives in the state of Michigan and Trump supporters align with him as he ran for this office. And as you stated, he is facing a pending criminal investigation. At the state level in Michigan, for what Nestle's office has called a conspiracy to improperly access voting tabulators, essentially. He was involved with a, uh, according to the allegations, he was involved with a group of people that uh, conspired together to get their hands on voting tabulators, actual machines used in our presidential election, take them to hotel rooms and rental properties uh, across the state, essentially break them open and examine them. Uh, And that, according to the investigators, damaged the machines. Now a special prosecutor is weighing whether or not to charge matt and some of the other people involved and and just on friday the special prosecutor said a decision on whether to authorize charges would not be made before tuesday so as voters go to the polls in michigan on tuesday they will not know if the person seeking their their support for attorney general is going to be charged in the weeks following the election
1: yeah it's crazy um Hopefully the state won't have to – again, I'm not a journalist. I get to say this stuff. Hopefully the voters in the state, the citizens of the state, will not have to go through having their chief law enforcement officer uh, get indicted. Hopefully they will dodge that bullet by making the right choice Tuesday. And then you have a Secretary of State race, right, Uh, that is also so shockingly different, right? Jocelyn Benson, the current Secretary of State, is sort of gone around the country helping people, helping secretaries of state and election officials. She wrote the book on how to run good elections. It's helped people do it. And then you have Christina Caramo, who has, you know, I think the last didn't last week or two weeks ago, she go to court and say, <laughs> you know what, we ought to disenfranchise Detroit. What's that about?
10: Yeah, two weeks ago, Christina Caramo kind of out of nowhere, uh, <laughs> She was the lead plaintiff on a lawsuit that said uh, that the voters in Detroit should not be able to uh, vote by mail. I mean, in our state constitution, voters across the state of Michigan have the right to obtain their absentee ballot through the mail and submit it through the mail, essentially allowing them to do their whole vote through the mail. And Christina Caramo made these uh, really mysterious allegations that were not rooted in fact that said that there was fraud going into de- on in detroit and because of that just voters in detroit should not be allowed to do this by mail they should have to go in person to the clerk's office to do this uh okay. that lawsuit I, is, is still pending
1: <laughs> I, I i am so flabbergasted. i mean i would understand it would be at least intellectually consistent if she went to court and said antrim county voters because that's where, of course, they said they found the fraud, right? Antrim County voters should not be allowed to do that. But Antrim County is small and a Republican county. Yeah.
10: And, and the other thing, not black. <laughs> in I, you know. in addition to that, we've had a bunch of other smaller elections, including the primary election for, for this this cycle, Have happened since the 2020 election. So you have to wonder about the timing of this. Why do this just before this election when she's going to be on the ballot? Uh, And then after they initially filed the suit, Christina Caramo told reporters, oh, she didn't really want to take take away the right to do absentee ballots in Detroit. That wasn't what the lawsuit is about. Then they changed what the relief was they were seeking in the lawsuit on Friday. Uh, It's uh, an incredible relief. What relief are they seeking? What
3: are they seeking, seeking?
10: A la- they, they they say they're seeking now a laundry list of various smaller reforms. They want a certain type of equipment not to be used. They want assurances that ballot drop boxes are being monitored. Uh, which everyone in the city of Detroit who works for the city says we're monitoring through video surveillance all of the drop boxes. Uh, it's the the suits relief has been watered down, but already, I mean, you wonder what kind of damage has been done by. Uh, the false claims that she has put out there, and and really, a, a lot of the other Republicans running for office have tried to distance themselves from this suit that she that she led.
1: Well, she and DePerno are both election deniers.
10: She she rose, I mean, just just like Matt, she rose to prominence making these false and unproven claims that there was some type of fraud in the 2020 presidential election that she was unknown completely before November 3rd, 2020 at the state political level. She, she gained attention doing this after November 3rd, 2020. And that led to her launching her campaign, getting Donald Trump's endorsement and getting the endorsement of a uh, Republican delegates in the state. Uh,
1: is this election close like the AG one?
10: This is not expected to be as close. I mean, the polling that we have right now has Jocelyn Benson with a significant lead. Most of the polls are finding that. Most of the polls are finding uh, Gretchen Whitmer with a pretty solid lead. I mean, these could change. I mean, polling is is absolutely wild right now. Uh, But The closest one is this attorney general race.
1: And so let's turn away from the races to some other topics. Did the Michigan GOP really put the personal cell phone numbers of Democratic candidates on their mailers and send it out?
10: Yes, that, that did happen. At least six state House candidates say that their personal cell phone numbers were listed on mailers that were blasted out in their districts a couple of weeks before the election. You know, they try to get around uh, what's called express advocacy, telling people vote for this person or vote against this person. If you if you say those type of magic words, the donors behind the mail piece have to be disclosed. If you tell people call this person and complain to them, you can avoid disclosure in Michigan. That's what these mailers said. So for the phone number that was listed, they listed the personal cell phone of a group of candidates. And the Democrats are very upset about this. And and they feel like an ethical line was crossed here at a time where politics is extremely volatile. And and this all happened about the same timing of of what occurred with Nancy Pelosi's husband.
1: Well, I'm sure they're getting different cell phones now, but it's uh, – I just, how low are you going to go? I guess. Um, the, the, Michigan has, for the first time, are voting on maps that an independent commission wrote, uh, wrote. That has the potential to change things, too. Talk about that.
10: Yeah, so the Republicans have had control of our state Senate since 1984. That's before I was born. (laughs) They've had control, just unbroken control for nearly four decades of our state Senate. And before every time before 2022, the lines were drawn by the lawmakers themselves. And it's pretty clear that the Republicans who controlled the state Senate were able to draw lines that helped them maintain control. Voters in 2018 instituted an independent citizens commission to redraw the legislative (laughs) district lines. We're going to be voting on these districts for the first time, candidates running in these new districts for the first time. And the majority in the state Senate in Michigan is very much up for grabs. This could be 1919 after Tuesday's election, which would be a tie. It could be 2018. Majority is going to ride on a razor thin margin of votes. Likely it's hotly contested. If Democrats win, that would be an historic victory for them. Uh, If Republicans win. It would be quite an accomplishment for them as well to maintain control with the new lines and with a lot of money being spent to help the Democrats. There's a lot of energy on the Democratic side to, to win this majority. So that's something to watch closely. In the state House, the lines are also more competitive. The, the Republicans are favorites there to probably keep their control, which they've had since 2010 in the House. Mm-hmm. But it's also something to watch.
1: Do you guys have Supreme Court races, too? I don't know this. I should. I should.
10: Yeah, we have two Supreme Court races on the ballot. So currently, Democrats have a majority on our Supreme Court. That majority uh, will likely remain intact. There is one Democratic seat and one Republican seat on the ballot. Uh, There is some speculation that the Democrats might be able to knock off the Republican incumbent who is on the ballot on Tuesday. So we expect those races to be close. I mean, all of these races. Up and down, we could have close contests, and it's going to go on for multiple days, possibly till we get final results. And you know, something else for people to monitor if you're out of state in these states like Arizona, Michigan, uh, Georgia. Do we start to see people declare victory before the results are finalized? Do we start to see? Uh, lawsuits early on, challenging certain things on election day. These are all things that I'm going to be monitoring very closely and will probably tell us a lot about what to expect at the national level in 2024.
1: Yes. The, the, uh, MAGA style of politics, which doesn't respect elections or, or the process of voting is a full employment act for you journalists and for lawyers.
10: Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it is, uh, there's always something to cover right now, especially in a state like Michigan with the, just the back and forth is just, it's unbelievable, uh, how many lawsuits there, there've already been a handful of lawsuits about the election and we expect more, uh, and it's hard to even anticipate what could happen on Tuesday. I, I think, You know, we we are in this situation where our Election Day votes get counted first, usually. So the Election Day vote, the people that show up at the polls on Election Day tend to favor the Republicans. The people who vote absentee before Election Day, that favors the Democrats. But those votes are counted last, usually. So it's likely that on Tuesday in the initial numbers in Michigan, Republicans are going to look to be doing better than they will be once all the votes are counted And you wonder, going into this, what is going to happen if a Republican candidate has a large lead? Are we going to see people declare victory and then absentee ballots come in and put that in doubt? There are so many things in play here that, uh, I mean, it's, it's going to be some real drama.
1: But haven't you and all the other journalists in Michigan and everywhere else spent the last two years educating Americans about how votes get counted? I think everybody knows after the last election that you don't count all the votes on election day. I just, I mean, we saw that in the presidential election. We've seen it since then. I mean, and we've audited it since then. I mean, how do people expect the votes to be counted if they, you know, you don't start counting until after election day on some of them?
10: Yeah. It's, I mean, (laughs) Uh, it's a it's a frustration for me as someone that spends their life trying to inform people about how government works. We do story after story trying to explain the processes, trying to explain like, hey, the Republicans are going to look like they're doing well. Then the absentee ballots are going to come in, and it's going to get a lot closer. And maybe Democrats are going to take the lead, or maybe they're not. It's going to be tight. But this is the pattern of voting, and and, and even though we shout that into this storm over and over again in the weeks before an election there are certain people out there that don't listen to us and don't care what we have to say and uh you know this is going to yeah. happen again and, and you wonder what turns out from that
1: well i had a scholar on earlier in the show said that only between 15 and 20 percent of americans are highly engaged they, they you know have a news subscription watch the news that um, the rest of america you know, they sort of get it from Facebook or from a friend, but they don't read the news. 67% don't read the news at all. Um, so we have to rethink our strategies for connecting with uh, with Americans.
10: Yeah, I, 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 I think about this all the time. And you wonder, uh, did the, the scholar say what that percentage was 20 years ago when newspapers were in their heydays. I mean, it's, I'm
8: sure.
1: We talked about, we talked about uh, the uh, mainstream news at the time, which tended to bring everybody to the middle, but it also tended to leave out the stories of lots of Americans. Right. So, so the trade-offs are interesting. This is a conversation you and I can have post-election (laughs) post-insanity <laughs> about election, uh, but b- before the next one gets kicking off, where we'll talk about, yeah. you know, journalists' strategies for for deepening our connection to uh, our fellow citizens. Yeah. Well, Craig, and, good uh, luck me- in, the, in the next couple days. I know you're going to be really busy, um, and all of us are going to watch, but Michigan, it just is a case study in – you know the differences between that are on display and a really important place to sort of i wanted this to be the last discussion before uh election day so thank you
10: hey i i appreciate you having me on and i appreciate you letting me share my my love of talking about michigan politics so i i appreciate it thanks to all your listeners have a great weekend you too
1: all right that was craig mauger from the detroit news um Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, 773-763-9278.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT
1: 820. Okay, 773-763-9278. Let's hear what's on your mind as we come to the close of this important election cycle. Paul, what's it look like out there in Seattle?
6: Yeah, Edwin, you are. I always think of you as the, you're the eternal optimist. Uh, you always are. Just, and I suppose doing the show, you have to be that. But honestly, goodness, your guests today don't make me feel optimistic. It was uh, <laughs>
3: It's
1: a tight, election.
6: Well, you know what? It's kind of like. Well, David Pepper, uh, his his segment, very disturbing that a legislature would. Uh, just ignore a ruling of a court, which you can do. That's what you can do. That's what we're proving. That's what the whole Trump era is proving, is you can just ignore. The the Constitution basically means play nice in the sandbox. Um, And if you don't, okay, well, it doesn't mean you won't get any um, Kool-Aid.
1: The rule of law should matter. It has not mattered.
6: It should. Yeah, it should. It should for people. But you see the the founders are, were a little more high minded than than what America has become, and uh, that oh, all of this honor honor and the you know, all this and and we're getting to the point where you know um, I, I have so, like Ben Franklin said, what do we have? You have a republic if you can keep it. I don't know that we can, because you know one of the things I think about is that once you have the symptoms of the cancer that ultimately is found when you go to the doctor, it's probably way too late to treat it successfully. It'll have to be an all out war of attrition on this disease. And honestly, when you think about, like you talked about, I I don't think that this election, hopefully Democrats, even if they win handily, um, is that going to is is the is the right wing is this right wing going to back down and say no when you got this this uh, Elmer Stewart whatever his name is with the Mister One Eye shot his own eye out saying uh, taking his own uh, testifying in his own defense in a criminal federal case uh, saying that Joe Biden is the unconstitutional president and we should have brought rifles he didn't say that that's the that's what the prosecution showed and. This is, uh, you know what? Fascism has never been defeated politically, Edwin. It's always taken something more like an, a wall out war of attrition, and that's what they want. And I, I just don't see, I can't believe, like, say, in Michigan, that uh, some of these people, that this Caramo, Christina Caramo is a nut. And but so it's Matthew Deferno's a lawyer, but uh, she's a nut, and he, he, I don't know why. Why lawyer means anything? But, you know, he's a lawyer and and means something else. But yeah, the, the, the fact that there's a possibility that they could win, and what they've said already, should anybody in Michigan accept any of them—Tudor Dixon, Christina Caramo, or Matthew Deferno, Should I think Democrats would say we don't accept you because none of you have? Ever accepted that the elections are valid? Isn't that what you know Democrats what? should I, say? We don't accept. No, it?
1: Democrats should say we are running fair elections, and we should assure that we run fair elections. And Ameri- you know, if Americans lose confidence that our elections are fair, we have nothing holding us together. Nothing, and that is an abyss from which we cannot return. So let's run fair elections. Let's we'll run them fair for everybody, and then let's win them. Now, the, the, yeah, they're, the they, they're, they're biased by unfair maps. They're biased by the hundreds of billions of dollars in dark money that the, this horrid Supreme Court has allowed to pollute our politics. But at the end of the day, in most places, um, uh, votes are still counted, and we have to make them count
6: okay so let me and ask what, you.
1: what's the alternative paul you're gonna pull up a rifle i mean yeah. what like
10: seriously
6: <laughs> yeah i know it's a quandary and there's a lot of philosophical quandary uh but uh, let me ask you this you started the show by saying you know there's, po- there's politics and there's government and we don't there is a, from the democratic point of view there's not another there's not the other side there's not the other we, we are not arguing policies the, the Republicans want to argue only they want to have a social and cultural war. They yes. are not, they're not there. Do you see the screaming people red face saying, no, uh, free market? No, a uh, uh, single payer. No, I think free. we don't have that. We are not. Well, we
1: do. We do. The, 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 they, they are, are saying we do, but they aren't saying it out loud because they know they'll get slaughtered. But what they're saying is there should be no regulations. They're saying they're saying that the, the nation belongs to the corporations and their owners. And that's we're going to use we're going to use social issues to to fool people into giving away their freedom. And that that's what they're so saying.
6: What, and, what they what they are default saying is that the, the Constitution protects us from a tyrannical government, but not from tyrannical corporations or tyrannical individuals who would who would rob you or infringe upon your constitutional rights. And that's true. The court, actually the Supreme court has ruled since 1876 that, that, that individuals can infringe upon your constitutional rights. I understand yes. that. I, I know the law too, but is that what we're going to accept? Is that what we're going to accept? No, that? Uh, that's
1: what we're fighting. That is that. Okay. I mean, we, we are fighting, a, a revanchist right wing that does not believe in individual freedom, that believes the deck should be stacked against people that doesn't trust okay, but ordinary you, Americans. You to see, make-
6: yeah, okay. Well, I'm saying this. You see, we have seen the dissolution of, of nations, of empires. As a matter of fact, the Roman Empire dissolved. because It wasn't, didn't fall by uh, military defeat. It was cultural uh, cultural. It fell apart culturally. And I have to tell you, the West Coast, and you you probably are aware of this, for a long time the West Coast has thought, and I do think, I was born and raised in Michigan. I have no kindred spirit with Michigan culturally. I definitely have no kindred spirit with with the farthest reaching places of this country, in Florida, in Mississippi, in Alabama. I live in Washington State. It's totally culturally different. And the West Coast is culturally different. And so am I supposed to hold together and want to have a union with these people? I don't.
1: Yes. I don't. Well, you should. you and I part company there, Paul, because I think if we only want to be pe- around people whose culture is just like our own, then we're going to, all of us, be poorer, less challenged, we'll live duller lives. I love being in cultures that aren't exactly the same as mine, that they're seeing people who have different points of view and different challenges and different expertise. And, and they, I'm astounded by that. That's one of the things I love about America. And I love it then, when okay, I'm Edwin,
6: in. Edwin, then, then, then they, when I give them a hug, I don't expect a gun to be pushed into my belly. you see what I'm saying?
1: I, we have some work to do. Uh, we have some work to do, and okay. some of this is we, uh, you know, we've spent all our time on politics. Almost w- the cure for what di- what what is hurting America is going to be not just politics. We have to win to keep them from steering us in a terrible place, right? But then we have to do more than govern in politics. We have to socially reach out and try and break down these barriers when only you know, 30% of America ever reads the news. We have a giant chunk of our population that doesn't, you know, isn't working from the same basis of, of information as the rest of us. That's a, that's a structural problem that we ought to be able to solve.
6: I love, I love your answers. And that's why I listen to you. And thank you. That's great. I, you, you are encouraging and you take on my challenges very, very well. I, I appreciate that. Thank
1: you. Well, th- thank you, Paul. I really appreciate your call and, and, uh, you know, your support for this community. we built all of us together to share the light for people. All right, Scott, what's on your mind today?
8: Well, I'm, tra- I- I'm driving back home to Munster, Indiana right now. I found your radio program. I appreciate the different perspective. I am a center of the road type of person. Um, the color before me, listen, we are all united by Marvel movies in The Simpsons. There, there's lots <laughs> that unite us. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, that, 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 and that, the
1: Constitution, that, yes.
8: Yeah. You know, 100% the Constitution. I mean, yep. and, and yep. you know, I, I'm a Mill row person. What I have found nine times out of ten, yep, what you see on the TV is something pretty interesting. What you see on Twitter is pretty interesting. Talk to an actual individual who might have a different perspective. It's amazing how how much we all actually agree on. You know we want good schools, we want good roads you know we we want you know good health for people, and we don't and nobody wants to pay an arm and a leg for it either Now we're willing to some of us are willing to pay a little bit more than others, but that's, when you get down to it, we all want the same things.
1: Yeah, the question is, the question, and I think this is a part of what is driving the divide right now, is do we want them for each other? We all want the same things, but do we want them for everybody? Do we want them for, you know, each other? And that that really you know, is a, that's a question as old as the Bible, right? You just got to.
8: It, it, well, it, it's the Hobbes-Rousseau debate all over again. You know, it, yeah. it's how, how you find yourself to be free. It's 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 not as complicated as what TV makes it out um, the last thing I'm going to say is, you know, you're talking about newspapers. Nobody reads it. I would almost guarantee and I understand why newspapers do it It is what it is. But there is definitely a correlation between the paywall and people stop reading news.
1: Absolutely right. In, you're, you could not be more right. And there's a news organization that I like called Courier News, which has no paywall mm-hmm. and puts their stuff out on social media, in part because of this fact that 67% of Americans won't read the news. So that we have to find new strategies. I mean, radio is, yes. is free to Everybody wants to listen. There are ways, but they're not enough ways to reach out and no. get people. Info. And this isn't a news show. I mean, people need the news.
8: Yeah, well, and, and I mean, time was when, you know, you could go to the library and you might still be able to, I don't know, read the Wall Street Journal, read the New York Times, and you're going to figure out something in the middle, which nine times out of ten, it's probably closer to the New York Times. But you know what? The broken clock is right twice a day mentality works as well. And sometimes
3: they're right, too.
8: <sighs> yeah, no, I, I I get that.
1: I mean, I, I think... Uh... There are issues this cycle where are there are clearer differences where I cannot find. Um, I can't find anything about denying the integrity of elections that I credit. I can't find it. We've um, looked. We've given everybody a you chance. Know, you know, I don't see it.
3: The,
8: the way I've always said it is doing fraud on a presidential level, that, that's, that's, that's impressive. It's just not plausible. Now, you know, weird, weird, small elections where literally it's, you know, 500 people voting on dog catcher. Okay, you could probably swing that. You really could. Uh,
1: But but like I said, that's not what was the question. The question is, did we steal a presidential election? Right. I just don't. I don't see it. It is
8: not plausible.
3: So so
1: some of these things you can't find the middle ground. But by and large, there's plenty of middle and. Yeah. And if, we, if we have, if as a country we have our knives at each other's throats, we, we'll all die. Right. That's just, that's,
8: yeah, right. we, you're we're, 100% right. You know, yeah. and it started, it, to me, it started in the um, primary election where Dick Luger lost. Um, Murdoch, you know, he was, he's a nut job, but he hit people, he hit, he hit Luger on the, you compromise. And that's a big yeah. no-no, you know, at that um, point. And and you see also on on the Democrats side, because, I mean, AOC, she's got a lot of positive, but there is no desire to compromise, even with her own party a lot of time. You know, it's this lack of compromise that 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 is driving that giant, giant wedge. There's plenty that we can get along, agree on, you know, and and today the
1: the Democrats are a, a big party, right? Um yeah. uh, Scott, they're, they're big. Par- so there's a lot of compromise amongst between AOC, you know, on one side and Chuck Manchin on the other. What the Democratic Party does is a series of compromises, which is what, after all, a government in a big, diverse democracy does. It finds a way to oh. balance all these interests. The Republican Party has become an ideological purist party. So there is less of that, much less of that.
8: Um, I'm going to disagree with you on that. The Republican Party has become the Mitch McConnell. And again, if I lived in Kentucky, I'm voting for him in a second. Same reason why I would have voted for Tom Daschle. They're in, you know, bunk states. Nobody cares about it. But oh, my God, did those two people bring a whole lot of money to those states. Like it, it has become the party of give Mitch McConnell as much money as he wants for Kentucky.
1: Well, I, I, I think Mitch McConnell's hanging uh, I mean, I, I disagree with this points of view. I don't live in a state, but he, he's, he's hanging on, but I think it's a MAGA party, not a Mitch McConnell party. Um, and, and, and that goes to Luger's loss that you were raising before. I think we're in Donald Trump. Oh, yeah,
3: it, it was, it
8: was the Tea Party. It was the Tea Party. And I mean, which is, and, a you know, extension of, you know, MAGA. Um, but you know what? And, and to be fair, this, this election is probably going to be great if, The Republicans lose because, I mean, let's just be honest. You have have the the at least pox of a recession. you got inflation at 8.5%. You know, to to borrow James Carville, you know, it's the economy, stupid. This should be a Republican just sweep. It just should. And because it's the MAGA world, it's not going to be that. Which, you know, if we can get back to the, you know, James Carville era, you know, the early, early 90s, even late 90s. This might be a good thing to get act.
1: Yep. I'm okay with having a debate uh, between conservative and, you know, left of center and right of center on any policy about moving America forward. But that's not what talking to MAGA is. So I, I would no, love to get back right. there. The country <laughs> needs a right of center political party. All right. Well, Scott, drive safely. Um, thank you for calling in. Um, stay safe out there. Uh, Ron, you're next. You bet. Ron?
9: Yes. Uh, uh, Trump is going to announce his uh, uh, candidacy for president in a week or two. Uh, is this going to stop any of investigations against him at all?
1: No. Um, he thinks it will. And his friends in, the, in Congress think it will. But they think that because they're corrupt. They think it because if they were in charge, they would tell, the, they would use the Justice Department in a corrupt fashion. But we've heard from Merrick Garland, we've heard, that, and it is not the standard in America that someone, because they announce they're going to do something, they suddenly, all investigations of criminality dry up. That's just not what happens. And as long as we do not have a corrupt Justice Department, and we do not, um, uh, we did, we uh, did, have some evidence that was heading that way when Bill Barr was there, but we have a, they're they're straight shooters. They're going to do their job. And um, if they, even if they were going to, if they were close to indictments of any people in the political spectrum, they don't drop those indictments right before an election because they want to make sure that voters, you know, that that aren't swayed by the justice department. They're really careful about that. I think you will see uh, continued activity Um, And I am convinced, Now and I'm not the Justice Department, and I'm not even a lawyer, so I don't know what they think they need to meet the burden of beyond reasonable doubt in some of these cases. But it sure looks like in the document stuff in Mar-a-Lago, it sure looks like in the vote tampering uh, uh, stuff in Georgia, and it sure looks like in uh, the civil case on uh, uh, commercial fraud in New York that Donald Trump is in deep, deep trouble, and those will continue.
9: Yes. I, I, I find it curious that yesterday was the uh, deadline for Trump to turn in yeah. documents to the January uh, 6th Commission, and they delayed it until next week after the election.
1: Sure. Yeah. It, yeah. I'm not holding my breath for that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you shouldn't either. Delay is what he does. But you know what? Justice takes its time in America, but it will get there. Okay. Anyway, f- thank you very much for your call. Really appreciate it. Uh, Jim. Hi.
11: I, it's almost the last word, and this is what I want to talk about. There was a Reader's Digest article that always stuck with me. There was a well-to-do gentleman who gave up his worldly goods and joined the monastery. And in the monastery, they had 72 hours of silence. You had a vowel of silence. You had to think of silence. And if the last sentence of the of the article was, And when we did get to speak, the doo doo hit the fan. So, in other words, human communication has always been a problem. But now we have a just a massive—it's absolutely massive. Every before they shut this moral coil, they want to get on some platform or some other idiotic thing and scream out their whatever they think their their idea of the world is. I'm just got my fingers crossed. That uh, we throw a, a strong showing because, you know, it, and I know it, democracy, and when you're doing the best job you can, is at stake. I mean, it really is at
1: stake. It's uh, very fragile. And I don't think, yes. I, I, you know, I am an optimist, but I'm a realist. I do not think this is going to be an easy election. I think it's very close. Mm-hmm. I think we will lose elections, lose some races, we'll win some races. The balance depends on whether or not people show up. And I, I, you know, it's it's in our hands. We have to show up.
11: You're right. You're right. Real quick, Evan. So Australia Australia has the best model. 25 bucks if you don't vote the first time. 50 bucks or 100 bucks if you don't vote the second time. The second time is even more than that. So they have a 96% uh participation, and we have to get to some form of that so everybody gets a chance to, uh, instead of these, uh, you know, the special interests and so on and so forth, but Mm -hmm. everybody has to vote. We we eventually have to come. The kids in civics classes, the teachers have to teach the kids. We all have to vote, and if it's a a fine, it's a fine. Anyway, I've got my fingers crossed, Edwin, another great show, (laughs) and thank you very much, Bill. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Really appreciate it. Okay, uh, Rose, what is on your mind this afternoon?
4: Hey, Edwin. Hey, um, my dad and all my uncles fought in World War II against the Nazis, against fascism, and it just makes me so angry that people in this country are so willing to give in to something like that because a gallon of gas might be too high or a gallon of milk just to throw that all away for something so petty that's that goes up and down. Anyway, I just, I'm almost on the brink of tears, just, you know, hearing people talk about, Oh, I'm going to vote for Republicans because this or that's too high. It just breaks my heart. And when on the subject of inflation, whenever there's a Democrat on the Sunny morning talk shows or any other show, and they're specifically asked about inflation, what are you going to do about inflation? They refuse to say that it's worldwide and that it's lower here than in most of those other countries. And that is caused by price gouging and corporate greed. They refuse to say it. it. just I just scream at the TV all the time. It's like, just say it's corporate greed and price gouging. It drives me crazy. Well, jo-
1: Joe oh Biden did say it, Rose. Joe Biden said it recently. Yeah. He talked about, yeah, he did, about corporate gone. profiteering. Yeah. Um, and, and you know what? It, it, I don't think the Republicans are wrong in saying that government um, – put a lot of money into the economy to to help demand. Now, there are two ways that happened. One way was relief checks to people in the pandemic to keep them afloat, right? And we we did that, we Democrats did that, and we own that. The other way it happened, and it was a bigger amount of money, was the huge Republican tax cuts to the wealthiest, right? That pumped a lot of money in. And the Fed pumped a lot of money in to keep financial institutions afloat for a long time. So the money that the Democrats delivered to ordinary Americans to help them through a tough time is a tiny fraction of the amount of money that was primed into the economy for the wealthiest parts of of America. So I'm ready to take on that if if nobody else will. You bet all of those issues on inflation, Um, if you want to think who you trust to get this under control, it is not going to be the crowd that says, just give the wealthiest more tax cuts. That is not going to solve this problem for ordinary Americans. And in the meantime, what are we going to do? Are we going to make uh, prescription drugs less expensive? Are we going to try and help people pay for college? And so, you know, so we're attempting on the Democratic side to both bring down inflation and to keep it from hurting people as badly as it otherwise could have. Right so I think I think your main point about the democracy being at stake and and people being willing to throw it away I couldn't agree with you more it's maddening really maddening I don't think people are throwing it away because gas prices are high because democrats have a better answer on that than republicans do and I think we should challenge not let them get away with saying that
4: I agree thanks so much Rose,
1: I really appreciate your listening. I really appreciate your calling. And listen, everybody, I said this earlier in the show. I went through the ways that you can make a difference in these last three days. We've spent a year talking about the facts, talking about the good work that that people in government are doing. You know, whether it's Tony Evers, you know, paving roads all over Wisconsin, over the crazy opposition of a majority in this legislature. We've you know, we've been doing this. We've been we've been making this difference in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Illinois. We we've been helping Americans move forward. We've been showing that government can work. We've been I hate to say it, we've been making America a better place. On the other side, we have lying, we have the undermining of our democracy, the the diminishment of our rights, particularly women's reproductive rights. We have a bleak future for young people who care about, who are going to live with the consequences of environmental change. Surely we need to do this. We need to step up and go out and vote. And vote. But between now and I know everyone listening is going to vote. Do something else too. Go to one of these places I talked about before, volunteer some of your time and help get other people there. Remember, 67% of Americans don't read the news. They don't know what you know. So help shed light in these next few days. Love you for all that you have done in the name of our democracy and in the name of our rights. Hang in there. We will talk after the election.